This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Welcome to the program. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side, along with Jeff and Terry the gang's all here. And Dr. Matt is back from Fresno. Holy cow. What'd you bring me? What'd you bring me? Um, Dried fruit. <gasps> really? Fresno is the fruit basket of America. But no oranges. No. Oh, come on. I, I kept seeing orange stands and I saw orange groves with a million oranges on the ground that I should have just pulled over and grabbed you one. Knock, knock. Who's there? Orange. Oh, boy. You're not going to finish it? Orange, you glad I'm not going to finish this? No! Aren't you going to apologize for not bringing me any oranges? No. Mm -hmm. Guess what I did, though, by the way. What'd you do? Oh, boy. I went to the Sequoia National Park. Ooh. And saw the the largest tree on the earth. Really? By, By mass... There's more wood in this tree than any other tree on earth, and okay, it's called the General Sherman tree. So give us some give us some perspective. I have no concept of how large a large tree is. Um, I'm I'm actually wish you hadn't asked that. It's about thirty five. <laughs> Were you not paying attention during I wasn't the tour? Paying some attention. <laughs> thirty five feet across. You're kidding. A hundred in a hundred feet, I think, in diameter. What? Is that right? Around the in, in circumference of the entire tree. I can't even believe that. It's enormous. I have a picture of me standing by it. But there's more wood in that tree than any other tree on Earth. Wow. Redwood, by the way. But here's the cool thing. That's super cool. I mean, that's amazing. Mm-hmm. But somebody there loaned us a car, and you know, like, what kind of car would someone loan you? Like a if, sequoia? I, if, if you came to visit me to go on a trip up to the sequoias, a leaf, a sequoia. I would, I would let you borrow. I would, yeah, I'd let you take a Toyota Sequoia. Yeah, is there such a car? I think so. But I would. This guy gave me a Porsche Carrera, twenty like fifteen Porsche Carrera nine eleven Carrera. <laughs> Coolest you car. Immediately drove it into the tree. And I drove it. All, the tree is, I drove it for like three hundred and something miles. The tree is now the second largest tree in the world. <laughs> it was the funnest. It was the funnest trip because it, there's just lots of you know, just turns and hmm. S curves, and you get to take it in your Porsche. Well, somebody else's Porsche. I got to take it in someone else's Porsche. Oh. And uh, as I was driving, um, I got I got going a little fast a few times. Well, sure. But not as fast as the owner. The owner was like, how fast did you take it? And I'm like, well, I told him. Hmm. And he's like, oh. Wow. Was he disappointed Just that the, you didn't go faster? Yeah. I'm Leaf. like, how fast have you taken it? And he took it, he's taken it about 45 miles an hour faster than I took it. Hmm. And what is his name and number so that we can no, turn him into the no, police? not telling you that. Okay. But amazing, amazing trip. It really is just – we all need to get out to – you know, America. So we can and taste. Borrow someone's sports car and race through a national park. No, and then oh. just learn a lot as about. Fast it. Think, as apparently, eighty percent of our fruit comes from this Fresno area. Yeah, eighty percent of America's fruit. 
See, I was trying. The raisins. I saw California raisins. Were they dancing? Ooh, sunglasses. Yeah. Were they playing the saxophone? No, I didn't. Know. The guy on the sax, I think, I think he had a bad arm or something. I think he's, he's retired now. Yeah. Anyway, it was really great. He's so, all wrinkled and purple. Yeah. Sad. <laughs> Sounds like a bad ailment. So that was fun. Um, but what? Uh, what I mean, what'd you guys do? I mean, it was Friday. I, I left you just for a Friday. It's not like you had a lot going on, right? I mean, you were just gonna do the show, and yeah, it was yeah. good. Did the show. That's kind of nice. Had a weekend. Okay, that is it. Though. I got yeah. to take my daughters to a birthday party. Oh, and they fun. had a great time. They had their nails painted. Oh, they fun. got to take little Polaroid pictures. Yeah. And uh, they came home with something that has become the bane of our existence. Oh, pink eye. No. These <laughs> oh. little these little uh glitter? Uh little glitter. soft marbly things called orbies. Oh yeah. That you stick in water yeah. and they're supposed to expand or something mm. but they don't. And my daughters have been playing with them nonstop and water is everywhere. Mm. And uh, we keep threatening yeah. to. We're looking for any excuse we can to throw them out. You'd rather like they look that. at us sideways. Just, just say whoops, and that's it. That's all you yeah. need. Yeah, go whoops. Oh, oh. Ah. But it, like, if they give us any dirty look, we're just like, that's it. We're, we're throwing, throwing them out. out. But this wow. isn't. These aren't the ones that are in drinks, are they? I don't think so. Apparently, you can you'd... put them in your yard or something. To, it helps the plants grow. Oh, oh is that what they're telling you? <laughs> this is what the the mother of the the it's birthday just like mulch. Yeah. So that's a, what a fun thing. So no, you went no. to the girls' birthday party? No, we dropped them off. Oh, good. So you had a great weekend, too. There, I mean, there's some parties where, like, the parents hang around. And... No, those are weird. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not looking forward to it's any of that. better when the parents leave. <laughs> um, okay, so and, and so you had fun at the not going to the birthday party but playing with Orbeez. I got to drive a Porsche Carrera all weekend. And I Terry... bought a fridge. Oh, really? Excellent. Yeah. How'd that go? It was kind of out of desperation since the uh, current fridge stopped working. Ice? Is there an ice maker? Uh, no. Is there a water dispenser? Uh, no. Is there a big sliding shelf to put your cold cuts? No. Is it one of those fridges where it's basically like a see-through glass front? Uh, no. We, play, a... we played with that one, though. And those thought, ones are kind of cool. What's the point of this? You knock on the front of the fridge, and yeah. it turns a light on inside so you can see what's in the fridge because opening the door is just will way it, too much effort. Will it order your food when no. someone... <clears throat> Is out of milk? No, it is a generic white because all, all the appliances are white. Yeah. And my wife's looking at it like, you know, if you get the stainless steel, yeah, you, have no, like, yeah. you have to like clean it. Right. Just makes a mess. So it's the freezer on top, fridge on the bottom, just generic white. The just freezer. Basic. On, it really, that's, yeah. Didn't your parents ever yell at you, though, for having the refrigerator door open? Yeah, all it's, the time. I, I would always tell them, like, how am I supposed to decide what I want to eat right. with the refrigerator door closed? So now I guess they've solved that solution yeah, with just, the glass front. I just leave it open because now I own the fridge, so who cares? Does hmm. um, Is there a crisper? Uh, yeah, probably. Good. Okay. Yeah. Is there a decrisper? Mm, I don't know. We'll have to look. <laughs> Currently, everything in the fridge... Because we don't get the fridge till tomorrow. Oh. The oh, you don't is, even have it. Well, so our freezer is now the fridge. Okay. Right? Because yeah. both of them have stopped working at optimal levels. So the freezer is the fridge. The fridge is kind of 
Like it's the not, heater. It's not really heater. It's not really like a lukewarm situation. There is some chill. It's like a humidor. Yeah, there's some chill to it, but not not enough. Yeah. But you're thinking like maybe milk is healthy. So the mm. milk's up in the freezer, which is now the fridge. Yeah. And we have a freezer out in the garage that my parents gave us five years ago that we never plugged in. So I had to clean that because, you know, yeah, it yeah. kind of smells after a while. So you clean it, and now that's the freezer working really well, by the that's way. That's awesome. So now you guys have milk pops. So all the meat we bought this weekend at the grocery store, yeah, it's safe. It's safe. Hey, don't yeah. forget, when that big explosion comes, yeah. you guys can just hop into that refrigerator and you'll be just fine. Right. I saw that on Indiana Jones. Oh, yeah. Speaking of Indiana Jones, um, let's get to the headlines <laughs> and talk about uh, what else is going on around the world. Or the country. Or the country, whichever. Or, this, you know, in this your is neck a, of the This woods. is actually both. The war, war of words between Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un could be coming to an end. As they uh, report, South Korean media says that North Korean leader will suggest the president sign a peace treaty when the two meet. North Korea has yet to respond to Trump's shock acceptance of a summit with Kim Jong-un. But reports Monday in South, a South Korean newspaper citing an unnamed South Korean government official said the North would likely present a peace treaty to the president and ask to establish diplomatic relations between the two countries. Wow. Such a treaty would raise questions about the continuing U.S. military presence in South Korea and would likely have to contain a commitment from North Korea about reducing its number of nuclear weapons. As a North Korea expert from the university in Seoul explains, the U.S. wants a peace treaty at the end of of the process, while the North, they want the precondition before they start talking about any weapons oh. reduction. Okay, yeah. So they're negotiating the negotiations. Yes. We, we would like, the U.S. would like the peace treaty at the end of the process. North wants it before they even start talking. Somebody's a little excited. We'll see what happens. For a peace treaty. That's great, though. Something's happening. White House Principal Deputy Press Secretary uh, Raj Shah said Sunday that President Donald Trump still intends to meet with Special Counsel Robert Mueller. Trump's attorneys are communicating with the Special Counsel on specifics. The spokesperson said adding the sit-down would take place under oath. There is no intention whatsoever to fire Robert Mueller. Uh, Earlier this year, the New York Times reported that Trump tried to fire Mueller. And the president has characterized the probe as a witch hunt. We all know this. But, uh, yeah, so he still intends to sit down. He's going to sit down and do it. And apparently he's hired, or not hired, he is interviewing the attorney that represented President Clinton in his impeachment process. Right. The Washington Post says he hired. Trump says that's fake news. Apparently they met. They just had a meeting. Now, whether there's some sort of business... But, once, situation but like, there's only how many people have ever even, you know, been involved in an impeachment defense. Right. And so why on earth would he be hiring him? Well, you know. Seems like it's... Just in case. A little early. Yeah. It's like, when you get married, you also hire the divorce attorney. Just in case. What? Yeah. I haven't you, heard that. You didn't do that? that that's one of oh, Matt's, wow. like, five top tips of getting married. Yeah. Hire the attorney now. Always hire get your divorce attorney. Game. No. No, you don't do that? Yeah, okay. that's bad news. You're right. The White House uh, backed off President Trump's call to raise the minimum age for gun purchases from 18 to 21 years old and policy proposals announced on Sunday. The proposal backed rigorous firearms training for select teachers, formally uh, endorsed a bill to tighten the background check system, but did not address the age restrictions that the president had vocally supported. According to the Washington Post, the plans do not include any substantial changes to gun laws, despite widespread calls for restricting the ease 
of purchase for guns across the nation after last month's Parkland shooting. Instead, the plan includes the establishment of the Federal Commission on School Safety, which will be chaired by Education Secretary Betsy DeVos to further explore possible solutions. This comes the president publicly repeatedly went against the stance of the uh, NRA, who supports Army teachers in the classroom and opposes age restrictions to gun purchases. Oh, boy. So he came out really strong. Yeah. Now they're kind of backing off, and they're going to form a commission, which is governmental speak for, you know, we'll see we're not going to do years. anything on this. Yeah. Blah. Well, which is because there was another shooting in California. There was. Mm. And there's, you know, shootings daily. Oh, yeah. And so... Problem solutions. I don't know. Yeah. We'll see what happens. As schools around the country brace for student walkouts following the deadly shooting in Parkland, Florida, principals and superintendents are scrambling to perform a delicate balancing act. How do you let thousands of students exercise their First Amendment rights while not disrupting school and not pulling administrators into a raging debate over gun control? Some have taken a hard line, promising to suspend students who walk out, while others are using a softer approach, working with students to set up places on campus where they can remember the victims of the Florida shooting and express their views about school safety and gun control. The first large-scale coordinated effort or demonstrations planned for March 14th when organizers from the Women's March have called for a 17-minute walkout, one minute for each of the 17 students and staff members killed in Florida. National demonstrations are also planned for March 24th, with a march in Washington, D.C., and on April 20th, the 19th anniversary of the Columbine School Massacre in Colorado. No matter how schools decide to deal with the demonstrations, students have been reassured by Harvard, Yale, MIT, the University of Connecticut, UCLA, and dozens of other colleges and universities that their participation will not affect their chances of getting admitted if they get kicked out of school. Oh, boy. They'll say, oh, this one's okay. Okay. You can get kicked out for that one. This one you can get kicked out. <laughs> that one you can. Wow. Some there, There's places, uh, I read about a school in Texas that they're saying absolutely no, every, you get suspended, you're out of school, and parents have uh, objected to that because yeah. they feel like... I mean, it seems like it's it's maybe a civics lesson to be right. able to participate in something like this. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. But then in Iowa, they're 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 kind of there's a school there where they're they're going to kind of do a whole school activity around the march. Oh, that's it. that's right. So that it seems like, like that might be smarter than setting everyone up. But then there's the trouble. idea of the school. Maybe maybe it's turning more into a political message more than they uh, want. Yeah. And, you know, where's the balance? What don't about know. when you know? People weren't doing any of this. We were all just sloughing. <laughs> well, that's the other thing is uh, there's cynical adults who feel like kids are just using it as an excuse to get out of school. Ah, but this is a great lesson. Great civics lesson. Yeah. And a great way to go to Dunkin' Donuts. Dunkin' Donuts down the street. That's where we would go. Uh, finally, an unknown and deadly new d- d- illness dubbed Disease X has been added to the list of potential global epidemics. Is it X or 10? X. Okay. It could kill. <laughs> it says it could kill millions. Oh, boy. Each year, scientists with the World Health Organization... There you go. Yeah. Uh, created a list of the most likely diseases to break into the, a worldwide pandemic this year among the familiar Ebola, Ebola, no SARS, Zika. It's that bad. Our name, now they have one called Disease X. And unlike other pathogens, it's not known what causes Disease X or how doctors could treat it. Researchers said they add the Disease X to the threat list to recognize the fact that the next deadly pandemic could be started by an illness that has not caused any problems before. Well, 
This has nothing to do with the iPhone X no. or 10. No, 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 no. You're good. It has nothing to do with the phone. Norwegian scientist and uh, WHO advisor Ooh. John Arne Roddington said that it's likely the next outbreak will be something we have not seen before. It may seem strange to be adding an X, but the point is to make sure we prepare and plan flexibly in terms of vaccines and diagnostic tests. So when I read this... It doesn't actually seem like they know what it is, or if it is even a problem, they're just going to put a little space holder in the list for another problem. And then they will, to be named later. It almost seems like that. TBD. To be determined. To be determined. Should you be doing that with public health? Yeah, it seems like you got to know what it is before you, even vaccinated, right? I mean, before you even know, huh, that's kind of scary. Yeah, so they're saying an illness that has not caused any problems before, but even to the point where this doesn't even seem like it's an illness. They're just putting something there just in case down yeah, the road. Yeah, a little placeholder. Yeah. That, you know, bad. Panda flu. Insert bad disease here. It's panda flu. Yeah. Insert pandemic here. <laughs> That's crazy. Just seem like a, maybe, maybe that's something you don't release in a public statement. Maybe, maybe you just yeah. keep that for your. Maybe they're trying to name it in house. Maybe that's it. Maybe a contest to name the next pandemic. Yeah, I don't like those contests. <laughs> It'll come up with some goofy name. Yeah, it will like, like a Bodie McBoatface. There you go. Mm. Yeah, Plaguey McPlague face. There you go. Mm. Sounds bad. I remember that kid that had that nickname in elementary school. He was kind of a jerk. Plaguey. Yeah. Yeah, they always are. Hey, did you hear about uh, Chinese President Xi, Xi Jinping? Yeah. He's got tenure. He's They removed? He, he's in for life if lim- he wants what, to be What, term named. limits? That's what it was. Yeah. They removed term limits, and he can basically just stay there for Somehow as as his name was written into the communist um, constitution. Yeah. Like Mao Zedong, he's the only one, right, that's ever been close to Mao. Had, has had as much power as Mao. Yeah. She is now like equal to Mao. And the uh, what papers in China wrote editorials yesterday criticizing Western countries who are questioning this move, saying they don't understand China. Well, the equivalent would be um, a president somehow getting his name in when in the Constitution talking about the presidency, but not talking about the presidency, just having his name as the president. Yeah. Like President Trump. Changing the entire Constitution. And President Trump, there was a recording of him at a at a at a dinner or something talk about how this is this is a great idea. It's not a bad idea. Hmm. <laughs> that seems Yeah. It seems a little it seems kind of Yeah. And the twenty five percent of the country that voted for him was like, huh. Yeah. Boy the way by the way, a big election tomorrow in Pennsylvania. Yes. Which it, shouldn't be as close as it is, it's, but it's, it's pretty it's, close. It's interesting that the Republicans, uh, between the actual committee and all the uh, super PACs and stuff, yeah. have spent about three, three and a half, four million dollars. And like the Democratic National Committee has spent 300000 Wow. And it's close. And it's a Republican district that Trump won by about 20 points. Yeah. Romney won by 17 points. And it's been the guy that used, the guy that used to be the representative there. Uh, got caught up with a what an intern. He did something yeah, the whole I mean, Me it, Too it, thing, yeah. and so he he steps down. They've had two consecutive cycles where he ran against nobody. He ran unopposed to win because the Democrats and now in the state it could flip. The last time he ran against the Democrat, he beat the guy handily, and now it could flip. 
And apparently, I was reading yesterday, the Democrat there has out-fundraised the Republican by 500%. Wow. Mm. Now, they're saying part of it is because the the Republican Party thinks that the Republican candidate is a dud. Yeah. <laughs> but they say the other part is people aren't happy necessarily with what's happening nationally. Mm. And this is kind of reflecting on that district. This is exciting. Yeah, and President Trump even announced, uh, speaking of nationally, what his theme might be for twenty for the elections for twenty twenty years. Yeah, did you hear what it is? Keep America great! Yeah, exclamation point! Keep so, America great! Which is interesting because like it was make America great. Yeah, right now we're now there. we're going to so keep he's it. Made it great. Yes. So we're just trying to maintain greatness. Now you just got to keep it. So is well, this, how do you top greatness? Is this greatness? Mm. I'm not feeling great yet. Okay, but maybe that's. I mean, maybe I'm that a should, little tired. That should be some polling data. Find out yeah. have we achieved greatness? Because he's saying great. that with the with the slogan, right? So question. I don't know. Let's keep it. Let's make mm. it. Let's just do it. Let's do what we got to do. Speaking of great, let's uh, take a break. When we come back, Joe Cannon will be joining us. He's our Washington insider. Joe in the know. We've just got a lot of questions for him about all things political. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, it's Monday, and so on Mondays we like to bring on Joe Cannon, who is our Washington uh, insider. He really is just, I don't know, well-versed and, and is, on the, is on the inside track, let's say, of all things political. He has, uh, he's done it all. He's been a chairman of, a, of the Utah Republican Party back in the day. Also was a, an editor of a, of a major um, of a newspaper, and is, we like to pick his brain because – He's just he's calming. He helps us understand some of the deeper things that are going on politically, and uh, we just can't get enough of him. Joe Cannon, welcome to the show, my friend. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for having me. You bet. Great to have you. Talk to me. What do you think? I mean, uh, I don't know if you heard Trump's new slogan for the 2020 um, election. He says is going to is going to be keep America great. Uh, many, are, I guess, are wondering. Exclamation point. No, exclamation no, no. point. No, exactly. Right, right, right. You got to get the exclamation point. But uh, I mean, have we? It seems like we. Are we sure we've made America great yet? Are we there well, yet? I, 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 yeah, I heard the clip uh, where he said, "Well, I can't say keep you know make America great because I, I will have already done that." Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, uh, okay. Well, I, I will say, uh, uh, if you close your eyes and just think maybe this is Ronald Reagan. Just kind of pretend. Pretend it's Reagan. Like, yeah. It's pretty astonishing what has actually happened, I mean, in, in terms of concrete accomplishments. Yeah, there have been all kinds of missteps, all kinds of language. You know, he, he's Donald Trump, and most, you know, most people still can't figure that <laughs> out. But he actually has done some pretty doggone big things. Give, give us give us some year. examples, just so anybody well, out there. Say, uh, I'll give you three categories of examples. One is, I mean, there are some big negative things. We're going to talk about one of them, I think, today. But uh, it, and I, by the way, these are things that I think are it, it good. So I can easily yeah. understand some of your listeners might have exactly the opposite view and view them as disasters. Right. But, uh, from my perspective, I love what he's doing on judges, federal judges in general. 
and uh, Neil Gorsuch in particular on the Supreme Court. Right. Where that represents my view. So that's a that that is a huge campaign promise made and and fulfilled, and one that's deeply satisfying to most Republicans. Second, and you know, way below the surface and not even really affecting. Well, affecting a lot of people, but not large awareness of it, and that is the um, his assault on the regulatory state. The mm. uh, you know his uh, so Reagan. One of Reagan's big promises was to cut back on regulation, and just by a weird coincidence, I happen to be in the guts of that operation as head of policy at EPA, but working with the president's task force on regulatory relief. Yeah. We did nothing, nothing on the scale of what uh, Trump's deregulation team is doing, both at the White House and at a lot of the agencies and departments. And this isn't just some of the big regulations, but uh, lots of little regulations just cost a lot of money that, have, uh, that don't produce any particular benefit. So I think, you know, that's a longer discussion, but a yeah. lot, just trust me on this, a lot has happened uh, in the regulatory arena. And then, you know, uh, much ridiculed by the Democrats, but this tax cut turns out to have some legs and have had some benefits and have, have had some material uh, results. And uh, it's gaining popularity after being, you know, sort of uniformly trashed by the media and by uh, by uh, Democrats, wow, guess what? Lots of people are finding a little more money in their paycheck. Mm. And, it, and it's not crumbs, as Nancy Pelosi would say. So right. those, are three, That's those true. are three areas. I, I think you're going to argue that a, a number of things he's done in the um, foreign, foreign affairs have been pretty good. You know, the, the fear that many, 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 just not most people had, that the wheels would just come off on our foreign policy. That, that just hasn't been realized. It seems like... Now, of, there, are many negative, there are many things that have not gone right. Yeah. I, I, oh, yeah. But I'm just going to say, it, you know, um, a lot of people's eyes are sort of diverted by Trump, the Trump phenomenon himself, you know, who he is, his, his tweets, his statements, you know, that, wow, just kind of head-spinning. But if you sort of set that aside, which is hard for many people, and, you know, it's a hard thing. Yeah. But uh, there are some pretty concrete uh, accomplishments and in the first year. It does seem like one thing that he has um, been very steady at is keeping his election promises. So many get in there, make promises, and then end up kind of finding the political you know, chaos of it all and back out of their promises. But when it, I mean, a lot of the things he ran on, uh, you know, being stronger on North Korea, uh, we'll get to steel and aluminum tariffs, changing the headquarters of, uh, of the embassy in Israel. I mean, a lot of the tax cut, a lot of stuff that's hard, he's done or is working on. Right. No, and he obviously hasn't done some things that he said he would do, but it's not without effort. He tried hard on uh, on Obamacare. Yeah. Um, but but the fact is, I think there is a, quite a large virtue in the promises made, promises kept theme. Mm. It's amazing. Even even some things that a lot of so, a lot of people don't like very much. Yeah. 
No, there's a, there's a lot there too. Talk about what you think about how he's handling um, North Korea. Now we're talking. We're we're finding out that there's now a meeting scheduled, um, or uh, soon to be formally, I guess, scheduled, um, where he will meet with Kim Jong Un. Yeah. Well, uh, that was uh, like many of the things that uh, President Trump has done a big surprise to a lot of people. Um, but you know what? What I uh, I, I was ruminating. I, I don't think I can add a lot to what you know. Almost anybody knows. He's he announced he's going to have a meeting. You know, the whole foreign policy establishment went into a tizzy about it. Um, and who knows how it would come out. There, there are plenty of, I read some really good articles about, you know, some of the issues, some of the obstacles and issues to a successful summit and uh, to be determined what constitutes success. We can talk about some of those details, but actually what came to my mind, uh, given how he did it in the procedure, was really, okay, don't, don't laugh at me here. Okay. I know that. I know that Donald Trump is not Ronald Reagan, right. and I know that Kim Jong-un is not Mikhail Gorbachev. But if you look at the Reykjavik summit in 1986, uh, it was hastily arranged, less than 30 days' notice for when it would happen. Uh, AIDS to both people, and there's lots of biographies or history written about this, were, were stunned at the pace of the discussions. They actually talked about complete nuclear disarmament. Uh, the decision foundered, I mean, the, the summit foundered when um, Gorbachev said, okay, we'll talk about human rights, but you can't talk about the strategic defense initiative or the, the whole ballistic missile defense system. Mm. Reagan said no. I don't want to go into all the details, but, but many historians say that that was the beginning of the end of the Cold War was that summit. They didn't achieve an agreement there, but less than a year later, they ended up signing the uh, strategic arms. Uh, well, mm. a couple of years later, they ended up signing the strategic arms reduction treaty, but they also <clears throat> um, had another intermediate-range nuclear weapons treaty. All of that, A, was fast, B, surprised the foreign policy establishment. And then if you go back a little bit further... Uh, just third, really 70 years ago in May, President Truman recognized Israel, uh, Israel statehood against the advice of every single person in his administration, uh, both the State Department and the internal White House people. So sometimes presidents just acting on their own can produce a good result. I don't know what will happen with this one, but there is, you know, some history. I don't know that President Trump is aware of all that history, by the way, but yeah. he, is aware, he is aware that sometimes, uh, uh, you know, perceived to be impulsive actions. I might say the reaction to this has been, you know, mixed, but surprisingly positive uh, in a lot of quarters who haven't generally given Trump much credit for anything. And I guess just like with Russia, I mean, I guess there's a point where People are ready to just – or leaders like Kim Jong-un might be ready to – it's just time to make a change. They've got to do something to do something different. Um, and so maybe it's just time. And, and maybe some of this may not be his – President Trump's diplomacy, but Kim Jong-un's know, knowing that it's time. Something's got to happen or there may be bigger problems. 
No, right. I mean, I, I do think the the carry a big stick thing is is at work here. I, yeah. I, I don't think uh, Kim Jong Un is under any illusion that Trump could do something, you know, very startling and very massive with respect to him. Whether he would or not, who that's a different story. But yeah. that he's more willing to do that. And the sanctions have been tougher. The U.S. sanctions have been tougher, but also what I think really might be working here is that even the Chinese sanctions have been a little tougher. So that he's saying, uh, maybe I don't have all the pals out there that I thought I might have. Yeah. So who, who knows what's really at work here, but it'll be it'll be pretty interesting what happens. Yeah, for sure. I've I've got to ask you um, about the the whole tariffs thing because a, a lot of us I don't think we fully understand what's going on behind that. But President Trump is coming out pretty aggressively against tariffs, against steel and aluminum tariffs, or, or uh, for, uh, for right. pro- proposing these tariffs. But it also seemed like he's getting a lot of blowback from the GOP. So many of the, the GOP members are saying, just walk away from this, get away from this. Well, um, first of all, as you pointed out earlier, this squarely comes in the category of promises made, promises kept. I mean, no one is under the illusion that he didn't campaign on steel tariffs and trade wars and trade, well, trade engagement. So that's just the fact. It, however, it did come as a surprise. And it did come over the, you know, I've actually talked to some couple of participants in some of these meetings that you know there were shouting matches mm. around this with Gary Cohn and others uh, in in the White House, and even with all of the background of this, it still came as a surprise. And that hardly anyone expected him to make that announcement when it when it was made. It was like that the the announcement itself was a surprise. Yeah, but but you know, uh, and it, it may be a tactic. Who knows that that maybe that's a an after the fact. Uh, uh, saw it on his part. He's already said, look, uh, you know, maybe we'll be different with Canada and Mexico, which are big trading partners in this area. Um, the intended target of this is kind of interesting. So it, it is true. China produces half of all the steel in the world that's produced in China. So it's a massive wow. producer. Yeah. However, most of that doesn't leave China. Uh, so it, it uh, uh, in in the in this last year, 2017, the, the first 10 months that we've got records for, uh, only 2.2 percent of all of U.S. imports of steel was made up of Chinese steel. Huh. Uh, so so it's not like it's a a big problem. But getting back to your initial uh, question, I mean, the fact is free trade is one of those articles of faith, one of those axiomatic things among most Orthodox Republicans. And that's across the board, the social Republicans, social issue Republicans, pure economic people just generally like the idea of free trade. Uh, And in fact, protectionism often helps uh, lagging industries. So it'll be interesting Mm. to see where this goes. Yeah. Uh, Already he's talking about it as a tactic. Uh, Already China is responding. And one, one, trade is like a balloon. World trade is like a balloon. You push in and 
it's you, it's very hard to affect it because one of the things China could do is just make more things out of steel and aluminum and sell those things yeah. to the United States. I mean, um, anyway, it's it's a complicated it's... deal. But getting back, I think the fundamental elemental thing for Trump this is a, this is something he's talked about forever, long time before the campaign. He's staked out a big position on on trade agreements and on free trade and on the fact that free trade is bad for America because we don't, we're not as strong as other countries. I mean, he's got a whole history of discussion right. about this issue. And plus he specifically mentioned it in his campaign, but you're right. I, except for the two or three people in the white house who supported this, it's hard to find anybody within the, uh, you know, regular Republican Party who supports this. Isn't that amazing? I mean, and again, it, he's he's willing to, I mean, go his own way, too, at times, and, and yet really speak for his followers that he made this promise to. Talk to us. Uh, what are we missing, Joe? I mean, I know there's a lot of news of, of all different sorts um, out there, but what should we be paying attention to? Well, ooh, that's a that's a good question. I think one little anecdote that I have is that in the kind of mid to late 90s, I actually interviewed Louis Farrakhan, who's kind of been in the news lately because wow, of yeah. uh, meetings he had with the Congressional Black Caucus and, and others, and, and uh, some Democrats are not disavowing him uh, because of his anti-Semitic uh, views. So. Mm. The, the little anecdote that's interesting is is that I knew I was going to go out and interview him. And what were you interviewing him for? A magazine. Actually, there's a magazine oh. called Utah Business. I, I did a series of interviews. I actually interviewed Margaret Thatcher. Oh, did you really? How great. Some other some pretty interesting people. Uh, we were looking around to do an issue on race. So we thought, well, I wonder if we could talk to this guy. And uh, it was the, the time of what was then called the Million Man March. Yeah. Kind of more in the news than he is today. But the week before the interview, I'm in Washington, D.C. I'm in a cab, African-American cab driver. He mentions to me that he was at the Million Man March. And I said, that's really interesting because I'm going to be interviewing Louis Farrakhan next week. And if I ask him, I said, this is a true story. I said, well, what, what, will you, what do you want me to ask him? What would you be interested in asking him if you were doing that interview? The cab driver said... Right. First thing, right off the top of his head, he said, you know, ask him why he hates Jews. Huh. So African-American cab driver really got the anti-Semitism. So sure enough, a week later, we pull up, we interviewed, interviewed him and spent like four hours with him. It was, it was interesting at many different levels. Yeah. Um, he wasn't particularly fiery. He was very polite, very nice. It was an interesting uh, Sociocultural yeah. experience for me, but I asked him. I said, "Look, you know what? Just last week, I was in a cab in Washington D.C. and and one of your supporters, one of the guys who was watching the Million Man March, asked me to ask you, why do you hate Jews?" <laughs> and um, he said, "Well, I don't hate Jews." And I said, "Well, it sort of sounds like it you sounds hate like you do." Yeah, I, 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 I said, just so you know, to him. I listened to about six or eight hours of your tapes, videos of you on C-SPAN and other places. And it sounds to me like you don't like Jews. He said, oh, well, that's because you don't understand. The people I hate really aren't Jews. 
Like, I like Orthodox Jews. I like them, but these other people, they just have Jewish names, so they're not really Jews. Oh, wow. <laughs> and I said, well, you know, <laughs> I have plenty of friends who have Jewish surnames. They they sort of think they're Jews, even if you yeah. don't. <laughs> oh, wow. And, uh, anyway, we had a kind of a spirited back and forth on that issue. But I thought the most interesting part of that was that an African-American cab driver yeah. in Washington wanted to know why... Louis Farrakhan hated Jews. It's just an interesting anecdote. It really is. It really is. I mean, and it's, again, uh, it's weird how politics works because, Joe, it seems like you wouldn't want to associate with an, an anti-Semite, and yet he's, you know, certain allegiances align with other politicians. And so um, I, I, I guess just politicians have, I mean, there's, there's a lot of weird partnerships. Well, a lot of the a lot of the Democrat success, Democratic success in life, really does crucially depend on the African American vote, which they get on the order of ninety percent. They Democrats get about ninety percent, and yeah. so they they have to hew a very careful line in how they deal with that with that constituency, because in in dozens and dozens of congressional districts across the country. You change that 90% vote to an 80% vote, and you're going to have a lot fewer Democrats. So yeah. you know, they're, they're in a, in a, in a very uh, sensitive political spot. Mm. Well, Joe, we appreciate you uh, and, and your, just the insight you bring. We couldn't do it without you. Joe Cannon is, is his name. He is our Washington insider. Uh, more importantly, just a really decent, uh, incredible man, and we appreciate his time. Uh, Joe's also the CEO of Fuel Freedom Foundation, which is an organization trying to lower your fuel costs here in the United States. We will continue the journey, folks, doing what we can to help help us all understand a little bit better what's going on in the world around us. Welcome back, friends, to the program. Uh, Terry has been researching what Terry does when when the rest of us are, you know, when I'm in an interview mm. or when I'm sleeping at night. Terry is up all night long researching, getting the latest yeah. and greatest research. I don't know. You make it sound like it's really tough. It seems hard to me. Does it? Yeah. Nah, not really. You just kind of find this stuff. Are you sure? It's everywhere. Okay. It just grows on trees. What, what did you what, find? After you print it and then it's Yeah, then you print paper. it out and then it is on a tree. A new study conducted out of Purdue and mm-hmm. the University of Virginia suggested that there may, in fact, be a perfect salary for achieving personal fulfillment. Now, we've talked about it before, like around $75,000 yeah. was said about this. At this point, your needs can be met in the United States. Your needs right. will be met and you can live a life that is happy and maybe not necessarily stressful on like where you're going to live, right. where your food's coming from. Well, that number is moved. Oh, really? To what now? According to this study out of Purdue and ah. Vir- University of Virginia, it says the idea was to figure out at which salary range adults were best able to happily manage their work-life balance. Putting a number on that sort of thing is difficult, but the researchers managed to uh, figure out how to do it. They said the study concluded that happiness will cost about $95,000 a year. Wow, it seemed to have shocked people. Yeah. 
little gasp in the room there. Still, researchers are also careful to note that this figure applies only to individuals and attempts to measure happiness over the course of a person's entire life. Not an attempt to measure happiness over an entire life. Day-to-day happiness, on the other hand, seems to cost less. Still, the findings are a bit concerning, given that the average American household only takes in about $65,000 annually. Really? So, so they're saying happiness is at 95000 Yeah, they're $30,000 below happiness. That's just... Yeah, they're in the monotony yeah. category. So the study measured not just short-term emotional happiness, but long-term happiness with one's life. While only 33% of Americans called themselves happy in 2017, happiness actually exists on something of a sliding scale, the lead author says. Hmm. A $20,000 increase from 30000 to 50000 is likely to bring more change to your life than if you make 20000 on top of 150000 Yeah. It's all the the widow's might, if you right. want to look at it that way. It means more to her than it does to the rich guy. And right, so, right. Uh, the idea of more change in many respects can mean more money, but as this article points out, three-quarters of American households make less than $75,000 a year. Yeah. So where's happiness? Well, I learned this weekend, um, happiness is, a, is in a Porsche Carrera. <laughs> hmm. I felt really happy. Now, it it wouldn't keep me happy. Because eventually, you know, someone would scratch it. No, you would inevitably get into an accident. Wow. That's dark. Caused by you, is what I'm saying. And I mean that in the best way possible. Okay. I'm trying to figure out how that would work. That just doesn't feel possible. Uh, but So, okay, that's interesting. Happiness? So as they're saying, the money can't buy happiness, but, you know, it could help. Well, and it does help to a point. Yeah. Because it might buy you more time. Maybe it buys you, you know, maybe you can pay your bills. Right. Maybe you're not, you know, worried about where the next... Upgrades on Fortnite? Yeah. Depending on if you're playing that game. I watched my sons play Fortnite. My nephew night. was playing it yesterday. He goes, hey, uh, are you playing Fortnite? And I go, I want to. But I also know I have a certain aspect of my personality that would make it a problem. And then he promptly fired it up and we sat there and watched him play it. And I looked at my wife and I said, I think your son needs to play this game. It, Jerry, you want to play? <laughs> you have to go and you mine. Yeah, no, I've watched, for like, I watched for, it last for night. For materials, you need to bust up rocks to make brick. You take, you chop down a tree to, yeah. to have wood and so you, you can, can build, build your fort. But you, yeah, th- then you, but really it's a hunting game. So I was telling him. You just yeah. hunt people. I was telling my wife, like, look, he's, he could learn a trade. He could learn a craft. Masonry. Carpentry. Oh. Hold on. Why do you? He go... learns to work. You don't just get everything. You have to go earn it. Hand-eye coordination. There's some crazy skills no, that our but... child could learn here. No, but it's not. She didn't buy it. That's not what Fortnite's about. My father-in-law thought it was funny. I mean, in Fortnite, people have got to go. Well, yeah. I mean, people. It's not about building. I mean, you're not. On you some build levels, a tower. It's a yeah. great idea. Yeah, building. Yeah, but. Really what you do is you only Coord- build a tower to shoot from. Well, yeah, but there's like coordinating with other people. So you're learning cooperation. You're learning like how to, how to deal with other personalities who maybe oh, they yeah. just want to run around and shoot, but maybe you want to build. What do you want to bet yeah. a good portion of the people who play Fortnite don't know what a Fortnite is? Yeah. Well, they also spell it F-O-R-T-N-I-T-E. Yeah. So they're really focused on the fort part of it. Like that. Nick at night. Yeah. N-I-T-E. It's, yeah. it's a lot like Nick at night, but you build a fort and you try to kill people. Hmm. 
You and focus so much on that one aspect of the game. Well, I mean, again, having watched my child play it for an hour last night, I thought... Like the first thing they give you right out of the chute, they give you a big hammer so you can bust up rocks. Well, and They're teaching the value it's of like work. Thor. It's not magical hammer, but though. The That'd hammer, be cool, though. But really, the hammer is not... Yeah. Most of the time with the hammer, you're not busting up rocks and trees to to gather wood and minerals. You're busting up a house yeah. to get in to find loot. You're well, a, yeah. you're learning to loot. So it's like Wreck It Ralph. It's a lot like that Wreck-It was Ralph. that was a magic hammer and, though too. And then the minute such you, a negative spin on such a wonderful game. The minute you take somebody out, it's like a yard sale, and all of their yeah. stuff falls out of them. Well, yeah. And then you go pick up their gear. So well, if it's not really about it go, looting, it, it's it goes about to waste. ravaging others, mm. preserving resources. If you just leave it there, I mean, yeah. This uh, this spin brought to you by. Yeah. Fortnite. Just trying to get a PlayStation 4. That's but there all. really are a lot of kids. This is one of the hottest games out there. Yeah. and it's, it's a lot of fun. I've played like five other games exactly like it. Yeah, but none of yours. Yours were all for adults. No, no, no. They're just cartoon-based games on the iPhone. Oh, have you? And then I put them away because it's just way too distracting. Yeah. This one's just taken off for some reason. It's good stuff. So is happiness, could you find it in a video game? Not permanently, no. Hmm. So eventually, how do you... eventually, you know where you find happiness is in your life. Really? You find it by living your life, by having a passion, by working outside of yourself to help others, by caring. That's why the the finances. That's a yeah. great number. Yeah. But there is a point where you can be incredibly happy with half that money. You just have to wow. focus outward. Okay. Instead well. of inward. There's a tip. And play Fortnite. Hot tip by Matt Townsend. Thank you. We'll continue the journey straight ahead, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Happy Monday to you. Hope you've had a great weekend. Um, you know, I did, not to brag. But starting a new week, it's it's always, uh, you know, you got to buckle down, you got to focus. Joining me is one who is all buckled up uh, in a straight jacket, Jeff Simpson. It's interesting you mentioned starting the week strong because I had this idea that I was going to wake up super early this morning exercise, oh, really? and just start off by doing something hard for yeah. the week. How'd that work? <sighs> it uh, it didn't really work out. Where, where did you get that idea? Well, it's something that I've tried a number of times, and a number of times I've done quite well with it, but today I just wasn't feeling it. But you're trying to wake up. You already wake up really early, so you're going to try to wake up even earlier and exercise. Wow. Why don't you just exercise on your after your after work today? Well, because then I go home and I do more work. I mean, like on your way home, go stop like, by a gym or a park or wherever you exercise. Uh, put on that spandex that you wear that we don't allow you in the building mm-hmm. to wear, and uh, go go exercise. Maybe I will, and then I'll uh, keep getting a little bit of extra sleep each day. Yeah. 
I was going to do that sleep challenge through BYU uh, broadcasting, right. actually BYU, and uh, but then I decided not to because you've got to be a full-time benefited employee to get the incentives. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. But I am going to try to get at least seven hours of sleep this week. I'll race you. And I think you are going to notice a difference. What do you think? Do you think you'll push the buttons in a more crisp way? Mm-hmm. Push my buttons? You always push my buttons, but you never – they're not crisp how you push them. They're kind of – you're always a little delayed. Yeah. Wrong. Just like that. Uh, well, we, we wish you the best with that, um, and I'll be asking you every day then how your sleep is coming, except that might get a little boring for the listeners. What? Um, anyway, we got a lot to talk about today. We're going to be talking about how to talk with your anxious child in a way that you don't make them more anxious. My child is becoming very anxious. For some reason, she is worried about first grade. Really? How She's not she? even finished with kindergarten yet. Wow. But that's kind of normal, right? They they always thinking ahead, well, maybe worrying going, about the next stage. I remember being maybe a little nervous going back to school, but never like during the previous grade, I don't think. Oh, really? You don't – like you didn't – when you were in eighth grade, you didn't worry about high school? No, I couldn't wait to get out of junior high. Oh, really? Well, yeah, yeah. because of the bullies. <laughs> um. Oh, well, well, man, tell, tell your wife to listen up. This is going to be a, an excellent talk today or an excellent guest today. Uh, Lynn Lyons will be joining us. So we'll be getting into that. Many, too, by the way, uh, just a lot of interesting stories over the weekend. A helicopter crash it kills at least uh, more than two in New York. Um, their helicopter went down in the East River. And there's a video of this helicopter with engine failure just slowly landing and kind of landing in the water, and five people ended up dying in this crash. The only one that survived was the pilot. So were the, the people that died, were they in the helicopter? Yeah. Or were they people underneath, around? No, it, was, it landed in. in the water, wow. and then it kind of rolled over and tipped over underwater, and only the pilot was able to get out of the, of the helicopter. <sighs> it was just... And it's hard because you can watch the video. That and then helicopter or airplane crashes lately. A lot of interesting uh, news that way. And so, which weird. And then I was on an airplane, so that always makes it. Uh, flying with my wife is a very interesting thing because it doesn't matter what the sound is when it's at thirty thousand feet or fifteen thousand feet when you're landing. It starts to make her very nervous. They open the the. Uh, the landing gear door, and she kind of grabs on. I wonder what the protocol is in a helicopter. Like what sort of pre-flight oh, safety well, yeah, thing that do they you, do? And what do you do? Helicopter, let's just say you could – because they were close enough to the water. I mean, you know, if you could have, you would have jumped out, but you got a blade above you. Yeah. It's just – it's crazy. There's a lot of – there's just a lot of – you know, difficult tragedy in this world that uh, we watch. And I wonder if that's not one of the things that leads to so much more anxiety because we, we see the story. We see every story. We used to not hear of every every helicopter crash. Now you can. And go watch it. And it's crazy what we have to put and go through and put our even our put our kids through. So let's be careful of uh, not overstimulating our kids with all of this information. Let's also, while we're at it, uh, Terry joined us. We we're honored to have you. 
you with us again, Terry. I appreciate being you, back. Thank uh, you. you. You got so He's much... playing Fortnite. Yeah, not yet. He's probably trying to figure out how to download it because it, it's coming out. Is <laughs> that, it today? That'll be in a minute. I heard they have the the Apple iPhone version of the game, so oh, we'll see. Oh boy, that's and if I can play it before the end of the game, I will report. Okay, let's uh, let's get to the headlines, Terry. What else should we be uh, worried about? Uh, President Trump considering adding a prominent impeachment lawyer to his team to help deal with the special counsel Robert Mueller's Russia probe, the New York Times reports. No decision has been made on the matter, but the lawyer, Emmett T. Flood. Ah. Emmett T. Flood. Emmett T. Flood. Is that an old Looney Tunes character? I was was questioning, but uh, he has met with Trump in recent days to discuss the possibility of working for the White House, according to sources cited in the report. Flood, who currently works at Williams & Connolly previously represented Bill Clinton during the impeachment process. If he joins the Trump team, he would assist the president in dealing with the Justice Department's requests related to the Russia investigation. He previously turned down an offer to represent Trump, but has long been on the president's list of candidates to join his legal team. Oh, boy. Some part of this was deemed fake news by the president on Twitter over the weekend. Not sure. He says he's happy with his legal team, and then he named them all. Interesting, but so this so, has, I don't know. so it's not the president saying, "Hey, I could get impeached." It's just saying, "I really want Mr. Emmett T. Flood Flood yeah. to be on my team." And yeah. he did meet with him, but they he didn't hire him allegedly okay. that we know of. All right, that has been reported. Yeah. Approximately seventy six percent of gun owners who are not members of the NRA said they support raising the minimum age for buying a high capacity semi automatic rifle like an AR fifteen from eighteen to twenty one. This, according to a BuzzFeed report, that proposal even has substantial backing among gun owning NRA members at fifty three percent, with only twenty five percent strongly opposed. But while raising the legal age for ownership for all firearms from 18 to 21 has support from 64% of gun owners who aren't NRA members, just 40% of NRA member gun owners would back such a a plan. There's also a significant split on support for banning the AR-15 nationwide. 45% of gun owners who aren't NRA members support the ban, compared to only 24% of gun owners who are members. Hmm. So there's kind of a split when it yeah. comes to are you in the NRA or are you out of the NRA and what your opinions are. Well, there. and there's probably people that are so deep in the NRA and some that really don't care about the NRA. Right. I mean, that love guns. Sure. You know, it's just some aren't into that. Some just want to shoot their guns. Why, why join a club when you can just shoot a gun? That's right. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, the Pentagon memo sent to Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff was issued on Thursday, outlined the initial guidance on how Trump sought after a uh, parade scheduled for November 11th, Veterans Day. We'll look. The memo says the parade will integrate with the annual D.C. Veterans Day parade and focus on the c- contributions of U.S. veterans from the Revolutionary War to today with an emphasis on the price of freedom. The parade will include wheeled vehicles only. No tanks. No tanks. The memo adding that consideration must be given to minimize damage to local infrastructure. Okay, good. We can't tear up the roads with the tanks because we want to have tanks. So so thank you very much. Sorry. We, yeah. We, we'll have a Veterans Day parade. Right. Tankless. The tankless parade. It's always tankless. Has to be tankless. Every mother knows what it's like to have tankless people. <laughs> um, so that's kind of a boring parade then. Will we have... Long trucks with missiles on it? Uh, don't know. Confetti. 
we'll have personnel carriers with soldiers tossing you know, that really bad taffy that they oh, sell. Yeah. Take an eye out with Just some taffy. Chuck candy at the kids. I mean, honestly, that is what this should be about, right? This should right. be about thousands of soldiers, you know, on the parade route. Ten, hundred thousand people watching, celebrating all of our soldiers. Yes, that's what it should be about. Not about rolling tanks and yeah. missiles, like you know. And Russia. then the most incredible fireworks display ever. Right. Yeah, that's what we need. Or as other people are saying, how much money? Well, at what point does it get too much? Is it too expensive? Too unreasonable to have a parade. What price tag? I mean, we we had a parade. They're saying right? like twenty to thirty million is what they're looking at. The president just had a parade a year and a half ago. He a did. year ago. He did. Yeah, we don't. Maybe. Maybe he was concerned about the seats that were available during the parade. I'm not even a parade guy. No, you're Why not. Why is he wanting so many parades? He went to France and he saw their parade and he goes, Man. wow, that's pretty cool. Look at their tanks rolling down the road. The French, okay, they're known for their toast, mm. their fries, the Eiffel Tower, and their military parades. What about the dressing? Oh, and the dressing. I forgot. <laughs> I forgot about the French. Not sure if any of those are actually French. Yeah, sadly. If you ask for French dressing, do they give you a confused look in Paris? What are you oui. talking about? We. Oui. Do they have something called American dressing? Is that just ranch? No, it's just a really loud, bombastic <clears throat> dressing. <laughs> That's all they know. Finally, an out-of-control Chinese space station with highly toxic chemicals on board that is currently hurtling towards the Earth may crash to lower Michigan. It has been revealed. Remember we talked about yeah, this? Yeah, yeah. They have the space station. It was a prototype. It's up there. Now it's decaying in orbit, and it's going to crash back into the Earth somewhere. They've been trying to figure out where. The problem is it's moving fast in a circular orbit, and the Earth is moving at this, you know, similar speed. And yeah, once you hit the Earth and you start bumping into the atmosphere, you yeah, slow no. down, you speed up, oh, stuff yeah. starts breaking out. Where do you land? Nobody knows. They kind of have an idea about where around the planet. Longitude, right? Yeah. But... They're not sure exactly where because it's hard to, you know, figure these things out. I mean, this is, let's be very clear. This is a ball of hot metal. Yes. At the at the point where it hits, yeah, it'll be a ball of hot metal. And it could hit any one of us. It could. That's scary. Now, this is the Daily Mail. So they're trying to get people in America to click on this story. Yeah. So they go, lure Michigan. And I went, ooh. What? Michigan, they know. And then you read it and it says... It is believed China's first prototype station will come crashing back to the planet around April 3rd. Experts say U.S. research organization uh, Aerospace Corporation revealed that parts of lower uh, southern lower Michigan are among the regions that have the highest probability of being hit by the falling debris, while a precise landing location remains unclear. They uh, provided the latitudes between which the space station is likely to land. The countries at risk include... Are you ready? Yes. Spain, Italy, Turkey, India, and parts of the U.S. Northern China, Central Italy, Northern Spain, Middle East, uh, New Zealand, Tasmania, South America, South Africa, and northern oh. states in the U.S. have been identified as regions with higher chances. Oh, okay. But so agencies, anywhere. <laughs> basically half the planet. Oh, my they, they still don't know. They just wanted you to click on the story. But agencies will know the precise date the station will impact and exactly where the debris will fall during the final weeks of its decline. Then do they then send out a warning like, "Hey, maybe just complimentary helmets." Eastern Michigan, here's some hard hats. I mean, that's just scary. Yeah, maybe I shouldn't be so worried. Well, I think again. I mean, last hour I had the story about uh, what disease X or whatever they're calling yeah. it, 
and they don't have a name. They don't know what it is. They're just uh, the WHO has a nice little who, pl- who has a placeholder for <laughs> a proposed disease. Yeah, that may or may not actually cause a huge problem. Likewise, these guys put out the information, and it's like eh, half the planet could get hit. Don't worry about it. You're fine. Everyone on, the, I mean, there's like millions of people they just named in I these mean, countries that are now in the path of this, but eh, we don't know. It could land in the ocean. It could land in the middle of a football game. It's in April. Could land in the middle of of a March madness. Well, uh, could, but I mean, we're gonna, indoors. We're going to be fine. This isn't the way I go. I know that at least. Oh wow! Wow! Look at you! Look how bold you are. How are you going, by the way? Uh, I, it involves a plate of nachos, is all I can say. That's a good way to go. Yeah. Hey, by the way, I was talking to someone over the weekend, and they again said, man, that other guy on your show, Jeff, sure sounds like you. Really? So they, Was this my my uh, mission president no, that you didn't mention I was on the I show? I did not know. I had lunch <laughs> with Jeff's past mission president, and I did not know that he was your mission president. <sighs> you spent two I'm years with sure him in I Russia. Told, yeah. I don't think you told me. I don't think you did. I don't, I don't remember that part. Or maybe I wasn't listening. But um, one That's of the, the things, more likely scenario. One of the things that I think – um, we ought to do, just so the listeners aren't confused by who's speaking. So right now, Matt Townsend speaking. Jeff, let's hear your voice. This is Jeff Simpson speaking. I don't see, I don't see what the, the confusion is all about. Here's I don't what think I, I you sound do. like you at all. Can you, just for a minute for me, do the Mad Hatter voice? The Mad Hatter voice? Yeah. Can't you do it? No. So you think that will be the thing... That differentiates our voices. Yes. And if I can, I'll be my voice. Okay. And you be the Mad Hatter voice, which would sound like what? Oh, I, I don't understand all this confusion. I don't sound in the least like Matt Townsend. <laughs> okay, that's it. So from here on out, <laughs> yeah. I will be this voice and Jeff will be... Well, coming up next on MT News, we've got some funny, silly stories. Yes. Okay. So we will. Let's do the rest of the show this way. Can you do MT News with that voice? No, let's not. So I, I really, exhausting. I really feel like people would be more okay with us sounding alike. No, than people are like me I can't doing tell the difference. The Mad Hatter for three hours. It's a good point. Yeah. Uh, well, what we'll do is. We'll get two or three personalities. Um, let's let's do a little empty news. Have you got a little empty news for us? Just do it in the old-fashioned Jeff voice. Okay. You, A.K.A. the Matt Townsend voice? Yeah. So this one is interesting, and I'm going to play a little music to go along with this because I think it uh, is very fitting. Yeah. Um, don't you hate it? I'm not doing a Jerry Seinfeld Jeff's impression. Jeff's on the keyboard. <laughs> or, yeah, just playing the keys is while he's talking. So you get the bill to like your your uh, to the water the water bill right, and it's just way too high. And most of the time, they've just made a mistake, yeah. right? There's some leak somewhere, or the the meter reader has come by and they've read it wrong. No, this woman got a nearly five hundred dollar water bill, and she what? in her I, in her mind she thought that was a little excessive. This water bill is a little too high, so I'm going to send these yeah. water people a message. Yeah. So she went to her jar of pennies oh, no. and paid for her bill that was $493 entirely with pennies. pennies. 
Yeah. Did they accept it? Because sometimes they, they won't accept that. They did. They took it back to be counted, and it took more than two hours to count the pennies. Oh, boy. So would that be enough for you, if you were a decision maker, would that be enough for you to start making some changes? Maybe this is a little too high. Yeah. You think so? Well, or maybe what you do is you just start making a rule where we don't accept change. I'm surprised. Yeah, that I'm surprised they didn't say we don't accept change, or I'm surprised they didn't say you take these home, you roll them up and bring them back. We'll take them gladly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. All pennies must be rolled. Yeah, right. Isn't yeah, this such you- a cute... It's a great song. Rendition of Pen- Pennies from Heaven. Yeah. I thought that was your new voice. I thought you were doing a new voice for me. No, that's not me. Um, okay. How, have you ever had the desire to own a drone? No, but I do want a Porsche Carrera. Really? I drove one and I want to – I drove one this weekend. Okay. So that's my new thing. I don't want a drone. I don't want – and I want a Porsche Carrera. So any anytime you have like a kite – or a ball. Yeah. A lot of your frustrations as a kid were trying to get these things out of a tree, yeah, right? off the roof. Now, what happens as an adult, you don't, you're not playing with kites, you're not playing with those balls anymore, but you are playing with drones, and yeah. they tend to get stuck up in trees as well. There's a Tennessee drone pilot who tried to rescue his aircraft when it got stuck at the top of a tree in a local park Saturday evening. He had to be rescued from the tree himself when he got stuck about 40 feet up. Come on. I guess he didn't have like a 40-foot pole or something, uh, so he started climbing. Uh, He luckily had his phone in his pocket at the time. He called emergency dispatch from about 40 feet up. I wonder what the reception was like up there. (laughs) Uh, To report that he'd climbed about halfway to the top and couldn't get back down. That is a tall tree. That is a He's tall tree. He's 40 feet up, didn't even get all the way up there. Trees are probably the drone's greatest nemesis. The first firefighters on the scene determined that a ladder truck was needed to get the drone pilot down. The ladder truck arrived at 8.18 8, p.m. That's only 18 minutes after he called them. That's a good wow, time. that's a great time. And the man was on the ground by 8.40. Well, so, so what's the lesson here? The lesson is think before you climb. Think before you climb. I mean, I always think that way. Can I get down if I get up? Hmm. I learned that as a very young kid. I had one of my children that uh, got in trouble with the police mm-hmm. because his friends had climbed a pole and got they, they all got onto an elementary school. But my son got in trouble, but he never climbed the pole because he knew if he climbed up the pole, he'd never be able to get down the pole. <laughs> so he um, – Anyway, he still got in trouble, but I was... That was the worst. I was proud of him. I I, was proud of him. I got in trouble for several things when I was growing up that I didn't do. Well, but yeah, you did. You're still just denying it. Do I look suspicious? Do I sound suspicious? And if I sound suspicious, I think in turn that means that you sound suspicious. That's a great point. Yeah. Uh, If if you were going to go back to the questions you asked me, do you look suspicious? Yes. Is it because you sound suspicious? Yes, when Mm. you do the Mad Hatter. Um, Is it the red ring around my eyelids that makes me look suspicious? Mm -hmm. It's that that red eyeliner you're wearing, Mm. also known as dry skin. So we had uh, not really a similar situation, but we were at a park – and we were fly, we were throwing a frisbee or something that got stuck up in a tree. So my brother started to climb it to go retrieve it. Yeah. And a cop 
pulls up to the tree. Just oh, like pulls boy. his car right up to the tree. And apparently there was somebody that they were chasing that was uh, on the loose. And they thought that my brother was the guy climbing up into the tree in the middle of the day. Did they and- chase him? <laughs> They didn't tase him, did they? That would have been interesting. I probably would have been okay with that at the time because my brother left. and I didn't always get along yeah. growing up. Well, you, or weren't you the one that you were the one that called the cops? <laughs> yeah, we understand. Hey, up next, we're going to be talking about how to talk with your child to uh, to minimize their anxiety. If they're an anxious child, there might be some techniques that we can use as parents to talk them out of the tree. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, more and more we see anxiety and uh, anxious children, anxious people. It's a, it's a, it's almost an epidemic, right? Sweeping across the country, it creates difficulty and worry for many people who struggle with it. In the media-driven world, more and more children are falling prey to it as well. But there is a way to combat this problem, and to, here to talk about it is Lynn Lyons, who's a trained psychotherapist and has spent the last 30 years helping adults and especially children overcome their disorder. She joins us now. Lynn, thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me. Talk about anxiety. What is going on where we see more and more of it happening or or being identified or even diagnosed today? Yeah, so whether or not more and more of it is being diagnosed is a little bit hard to get the information on. And, uh, the World Health Organization, for example, tracks depression like crazy. They know the statistics around the world and how many kids and how many adults and what age groups. Anxiety, the information is a little more difficult to find. I think the pervasive sense, particularly in this country, is that anxious kids are on the rise And because I tend to see things through a family lens, I also see a lot of anxious parenting, which was really sort of the way that I, the way that I go after this, the way Mm. that I approach it with the people that I work with. So you see some of the anxiousness um, is really about anxious parenting. It's how we, it's how we go about raising our kids. Well, so we know that there is some genetic push for certain anxiety disorders and that because of certain temperaments or because of uh, certain uh, things going on, perhaps genetically, although all of this is, you know, things that we're researching at this point, um, that there is, there is a genetic push. However, we know that anxiety is generational. We know that it runs in families. And the research is pretty clear that if you are an anxious parent, there are things that you can do that make the problem worse. And then, of course, the flip side of the coin is there are things you can do to make the problem better. Mm. So just because you're an anxious parent, just because you were raised in an anxious family, doesn't mean that you're going to have an anxious child, but it means that you really have to be on your game in order to make sure that this isn't continually passed down from one generation to another. Yeah. Uh, In your book, Anxious Kids, Anxious Parents, um, I, I know you address a lot of this. What what do we, I guess, first we have to, and I've had a lot of clients that just barely are recognizing, they've never really sensed that they 
had anxiety, but they, yeah. as they look back on it, they think, oh, I guess I did. Yeah, yeah. So it's pretty, you know, I work with, I work with kids. I see adults too, but I work a, a lot with kids. And one of the things, I, I actually don't see kids alone. Um, I only work with kids when I'm working with their parents as well, when at all possible. Mm. Um, and most of the time with the families that I see, this idea of anxiety really isn't a big mystery. People don't say, gosh, I didn't know that I had anxiety. With obsessive-compulsive disorder with kids, that gets actually misdiagnosed and mistreated a lot. But most of the time, and maybe it's just because there's increased awareness about this, but most of the time when a kid is really a worrier, when a kid is really anxious, it's being identified for what it is, luckily pretty early in a lot of cases. Yeah. What are some what are what's what advice do you give us as parents? What are some of the the tools that you teach to make sure that we're not transferring our anxiety onto our children? Well, one of the huge things that that is pretty clear from a lot of research is that the way that a parent models handling difficult situations, the way that a parent expresses their own fears about the world, the way that a parent allows a child independence, allows a child to deal with uncomfortable situations, has a huge impact on whether or not that child will be anxious. So expressing your own fears in front of your child, modeling worried behavior. So, so when parents say to me, you know, gosh, I'm just so stressed out all the time, and I, I worry a lot about my kids getting hurt, or I worry a lot about my kids getting sick, that's something that we know is the, is the behavior, the modeling that can really support anxiety and worry in a child. So I see that in my office. You know, parents, parents will come in and they're on the kid, you know, like, oh, be careful. Oh, watch that. Oh, sit. oh no, don't do that. Oh, here, make sure mm. you drink your water. Oh, stay hydrated. Oh, blah, blah. And it's this constant what I call safety chatter. And, and the, the closer that we hold our kids in this sort of anxious state, it's sort of, you know, we've we, we really got them on a short leash and we're so worried about what's going to happen to them, the much more likely they're going to develop anxiety as a child and then as they move forward in life. That's amazing. And you, you can see it. I mean, just the point you made about um, if, you know, if you're worried, say you're worried. I mean, it's almost like sometimes some of us feel like it's not macho to worry. So we tell our mm-hmm. kids that you shouldn't worry. I never feel worry or anxious about something. But in reality, it's good for them to know that things are scary and we overcome them. Right. So it's about problem solving, really. When we, when we look at the kids that are really anxious, when we look at kids that come particularly from worried families, there are, there are a few things that stand out. One is that these families have a really hard time tolerating uncertainty. And so if you have a hard time tolerating uncertainty, well, then what you'll step in to do is to create certainty. So this means that you're going over plans a lot, that you're making sure your child knows exactly what's going to happen, that, you know, and this happens in schools too. So this child has a difficult time moving into a new classroom, so we're going to make sure that they have all the information ahead of time. It's not a, it's not a matter of abandoning planning, but it's really the over-planning and the over-talking and the over-reassuring that are real patterns in, in anxious families. So one of the things that you know, I say to parents all the time is that, just as you said, of course you're going to have worry. 
of course you're not going to know exactly what's going to happen. And we need to roll around in the mites and maybes of life. You know, so a little kid is, is starting class or a, a teenager is starting high school and they say, well, what if, you know, what if I hate my math teacher? Or what if I go to get my driver's license and I fail the test? Or what if nobody likes me? Instead of saying, oh, no, it'll be fine. Or, oh, let me make sure you have the math teacher that we know is nice. Or let's make sure we, we rearrange your world so that worry doesn't show up. What we really want to say to kids is, you know, that could happen. It doesn't, some, some teachers are friendlier than others, or you make a connection with some kids more than you make with others. Mm. Let's talk about what happens when things don't go the way that we expect. Mm. And so being able to tolerate unexpected things, that's being a good problem solver. You, Is, know, so you, you, you can have all the best plans in the world, and things can go awry. How do we, how do we create kids that feel equipped to manage things when they don't go the way that we expect. Yeah. And that's the opposite of worried families. That's so interesting. So, and, and so instead of upping control, it's mm-hmm. almost just ma- managing you know, your response. Correct. Yeah. And when you up control and when you, when you increase reassurance, everything will be fine. You know, I'll, let, let's make sure that we stay in contact by text. I'm going to text you all the time. You know, when I leave, when I leave the movies at nine o'clock, I'll text you when I leave, so you know that I'll be home by nine fifteen. Uh. All of that in the short term reduces worry a little bit, but but the. The, the problem is, is that worry just keeps demanding more and more and more certainty, and it's impossible to give it what it demands. So what I say to families is, let's not do the disorder. And if anxiety demands certainty, it demands to know everything, it demands that we feel comfortable all the time, if you are trying to meet its demands in your parenting and with your children, you're actually creating a stronger anxiety disorder. You're not diminishing it. And it's a little counterintuitive, but that's something that's really important for parents to understand. What? Um, so, because it, it's got to be really complicated when that seems like an easier idea when you're the non anxious parent. But it's, it's sometimes what we see is the anxious parent is is creating even more anxiety for their child, and the non-anxious parent just kind of walks away like, "Oh, you guys drive me crazy." How how do what would you, what advice do you give the non-anxious parent with the anxious parent? Well, and that's such a good point to bring up because what you describe is exactly what happens. Um, so that non-anxious parent, you know, just sort of throws up their hands like, yeah. oh, God, I, I, I can't, can't do this. this. Yeah. Yeah. And the anxious parent says, well, you don't understand how it feels. Right. Right. You don't get it. Um, so this is why I work with parents together whenever possible. Um, and I very much want the non-anxious parent's voice to be brought back into the conversation. That non-anxious parent has a lot of important things to model. Um, and working with, working with the anxious parent, with the non-anxious parent, is critical because we're trying to change the patterns in the family. So the non-anxious parent needs a lot of validation because they've, you know, they've often been just sort of, you know, dismissed. Right. And the anxious parent needs a lot of support and a lot of coaching. I do a lot of education to explain sort of, look, I know that this feels right, and I know that you're doing things because they feel loving and supportive and caring and you don't want your child to suffer, but you're actually continuing the pattern. And if I talk to an anxious parent about which parent of theirs was anxious, that's usually pretty clear. And sometimes it's easier for them to recognize 
that parenting behavior, which they themselves, you know, sort of experienced growing up. But I absolutely want the the non-anxious parent's voice to be heard um, because they're they're often kicked out. Many times it's interesting when they're having meetings at school with kids trying to figure out how to help anxious anxious kids, the non-anxious parent won't be at the meeting. Um, and that's not a coincidence. Yeah, interesting. When we yeah. uh, we had a son that had social anxiety, mm-hmm. and we didn't know it, but he in kindergarten he just hated going and being there, mm-hmm. and we didn't know what it was. And I'll never forget them looking at us just saying, yeah, you're just going to need to drop your kids off and then just mm-hmm. go away. <laughs> and we're like, okay. For me, that was like, let's do that. That'd be great. Um, yeah. But then it was, it's, then you pull up and the principal helped, you know, slowly remove the child from the car. And it was intense. But, oh, but yeah. man, the sooner we could get away, the sooner we actually saw some improvement. Right, right. And that's, that's the hard part about this is because it's heartbreaking. You know, I've, I've dealt with that in so many situations. I had, a, I had a brother who was similar to that, right? My mom would send him out the front door and he'd come around to the back door. <laughs> um, and, and it really is so hard for parents to not do, like I said, to do what feels loving and caring and supportive. Um, but long term, you know, my grandmother used to say, what's easy now is hard later and what's hard now is easy later. And that really is true when it comes to anxiety. That's so, so true. What are some more coping behaviors um, that we can be teaching our kids? What are the things that we need to make sure that our children know how to do to cope? So there's the problem solving, of course. The other thing that we really want to support in kids is we want to support autonomy. We want to support their independence. And so the more that you can give your child simple responsibilities, the more that you can lengthen the leash, so to speak, the better off they'll be at problem solving. One of the things that I see now, and I think it's a combination of a few things, but technology sort of allows parents to really keep such a close eye on their parents and vice on their children and vice versa it allows it allows children to keep a close eye on their parents but this idea that we have to know exactly where our kids are what they're doing all the time um, I'm not a big fan of um, uh, the the portals that we use now in schools where you can go in and check your high schoolers grades and yeah. see every homework assignment every the more that we can step back and allow them to figure things out, the, the better off that, that kids are. It's okay if they make mistakes. It's okay if they get in trouble. It's okay if they try and get away with things, and then we catch them and they learn that that's not a good idea. One of the assignments that I give parents when I'm, when I'm doing presentations and also with the families that I see is that I want you to take an inventory of the things you do for your child, and I want you to pick three things that you are doing for your child that they can probably do for themselves. Mm. And I want you to stop doing that. And generally, you know, lots of times we do things for our kids just out of habit, but really being able to step back and let kids from an early age start to do things on their own. Let them pick out their own clothes. Let them organize their own homework. Let them... Uh, communicate, you know, if it, you can do small things to practice. Um, they have to call and order their own pizza if you're having pizza delivery. And, and maybe when the delivery man comes, they are the ones that hand the money to the delivery person. All of these things that let kids step into the world versus us just, you know, lots of times we step in just because it's easier and quicker and yeah. more efficient because we know how to do it. 
But the more we can lengthen the leash, the more that we can give them a little bit more room, the better off that they are. That's such great advice. And I, 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 again, our concern is so much that, yeah, but what if they get abducted? What if, what if I let them walk to the park and they get abducted? Or, um, yeah. And yet those worries, they're not necessarily based in reality. They're Correct. based in anxiety. Right. Uh, the, the, the rates of abductions of kids have actually stayed steady since the 70s hmm. when I was a kid. Yeah. Um, so, and, and right now, I mean, despite the fact that we have, unfortunately, like we'll have these big tragedies that happen, you know, these school shootings and things that really get our attention. In terms of the normal life of kids in this country, it's never been a safer time to be a kid. Right. In terms of disease and safety and all the things that we've put in place in the last few decades. So, it, it, you know, parenting is risky business. I remember my, my son he rode his bike to school when he was in fourth grade, and he and his buddy are riding down the street, and a branch went into his wheel, and he fell, and he broke his wrist. And, you know, he comes home, and they're crying, et cetera, et cetera. And he has a cast on, and little bones heal quick, so in four weeks his cast is off, and the first thing he wants to do is ride his bike to school again. Mm. And, you know, gosh, uh, you know, part yeah. of me is like, oh, God, I don't know. Just, you know right. I don't know, I don't know. But I just knew I had to let him do it. Um, it's just hard. It's just hard to, to, to we, we can't eliminate risk in parenting. And unfortunately, that's, that's worry's goal, is to eliminate risk. That would make us feel better if we could know that nothing was going to happen and that we could make sure that our children are safe all the time. But we're seeing now, what we're seeing right now in the culture is the backlash of that, is that we've got a generation of kids right now that are really emotionally ill-equipped, and I see it all the time. Mm. Is, uh, I think we also think that we're helping, but that they'll... They'll, they'll they'll normalize. They'll they'll all be able to do it eventually, and this yeah. won't be this won't hurt them down the road. But you're saying you do see this impacting yeah. them long term. Yeah, and one of the so so if you if you've got an anxiety disorder, and if or you know if you're even if we don't have to call it a disorder, but if you've got anxiety that has a pretty a pretty big impact on your life, such that you're not developmentally doing the things that you need to do. If nobody does anything about it, and if you, if you accommodate it rather than teach the skills to com, you know, combat it, then one of the top predictors of developing depression as a teenager and a young adult is an untreated anxiety issue. So we wish that it'll just go away. We say, well, I'm just going to do this for them now, but by the time that they're a teenager or by the time they're a young adult, they'll have figured all of this out. That, unfortunately, with, with a good, strong dose of anxiety, that's not the case. It's actually, it's actually quite the opposite. Mm. So yeah. it, it, it does need to be dealt with because, again, anxiety and depression tends to tend to be like you know, sisters. And yeah. if you don't deal with one, you get the other eventually. Correct. And it, goes in, it generally goes in one direction. So, so people get depressed about being anxious. They don't necessarily get anxious about being depressed. So there's a lot of things that can make somebody depressed. Anxiety is one of the main ones. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, if you look at the statistics, well, we, we know that anxiety is the, is the top reason that parents bring their child to see a provider of some sort. We know that it's the most common 
disorder in the United States today, and we also know that's one of the top predictors of depression, and then we look at the rates of depression increasing in teenagers, and it all sort of comes together. So the great thing about anxiety is if you get in there and you deal with it, it's, it's enormously treatable, yeah. and families can do things to prevent it. I'm, I'm, so, I'm such a big fan of talking about prevention, of course, because this is something that we can really make a di- you can really make a difference in your family's life if you're aware of it and if you if you can check your own anxious behavior at the door and step into parenting with with that oh god this feels risky but I'm going to I'm going to do it you really can make a huge difference and I see that all the time so I, despite the fact that anxiety is is through the roof and depression is through the roof I remain you know perhaps naively so, but I, I remain pretty optimistic. Oh, that's great. Lynn, as we, um, as we wrap up, I want to know, what would you say is the one thing that if there's one thing a parent could do today to help their child better manage, better uh, lead their anxiety, what would that one thing be? So the one thing is, and this is, this is sort of paradoxical, but you have to get rid of the idea that it's about eliminating worry. And what you have to teach your child is that worry is a normal part of being a human being. We're capable of imagining and thinking about the future. And anything that we do that's, that's based on trying to eliminate worry is going to backfire. So when the worry shows up, we want to validate it. We want to empathize. We want to say, oh, of, I, I say to parents all the time, I couldn't do my job if I couldn't say the phrase, of course. Of course you're going to feel worried about that. And, yeah, that might happen. And you might fail your driver's test or you might throw up on the bus or you might not be able to fall asleep when you go to summer camp the first few nights. But being able to, being able to talk to kids about the reality of uncertainty and being able to use those words, like, I know that sounds tough, but it, it might happen, but we'll figure out how to deal with it. Mm. That's the language that really equips kids versus jumping in and saying, well, let's make sure that doesn't happen. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's such great advice. Lynn Lyons is her name. You're not going to want to miss uh, her book, Anxious Kids, Anxious Parents, Seven Ways to Stop the Worry Cycle and Raise Courageous and Independent Children. Lynn Lyons, again, appreciate your time and your insights. So So much of what we're doing, folks, really is about we're trying to help our kids, right? And sometimes when we're trying... It doesn't, uh, it, it doesn't always work to, uh, to bring on the anxiety by being anxious about it. We'll continue the journey. Little Coach's Corner straight ahead. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Coach would have put me in fourth quarter. We'd have been state champions. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball! Welcome back, friends. You know, one of the things, um, as I am coaching people with anxiety, I have a, a little philosophy or approach that I use that I call, I call anxious people Ferraris in a world full of Chevys. Okay, so it's, it's the, the person is driving a Ferrari. And some, I believe some people, just like a Ferrari, some are just more, uh, High performance um, as far as their their wiring, their sensitivity to information, their tendency to be anxious. They might, you know, heat up like a Ferrari. They might, 
spin out a little bit more. And then I, why I bring it up is that uh, I'm a b- big believer in a theory about high sensitivity. And we've had her on the show a couple times. Elaine Aaron wrote a book called The Highly Sensitive Person. And she found out that about uh, 20% of the animal kingdom, really, 20% of them are more highly sensitive, meaning they're more prone to pick up uh, stimuli through their senses than the other 80% of the animals. And some of the research shows that these these uh, these people, this 20% of the population, are kind of like the early warning detectors for the rest of us. And high sensitives are the the they they probably smells bother them more sounds noise heat other information other stimuli um, loud noises bother them the lighting matters to them these are people that spend a lot of time thinking in their heads they they spend a lot of time worrying about what happened and thinking about what might happen happen and I noticed that um, the outcome the outcome of that if you're picking up four times more information or stimuli you're probably more likely to feel anxious. And um, then I I read Elaine Aaron's book and I thought, holy cow, there's the data. There's the proof of, of what's going on. And I, I realized that some people then are just like a Ferrari. And Ferraris are awesome. Don't I mean, but everyone thinks, oh, well, yeah, you're just saying that people with anxiety are just better than the rest of us. No, I'm saying somebody that's a Ferrari – it's a great car, but you don't want a Ferrari climbing a mountain, right, in the dirt and going four-wheeling. Ferraris are awesome when we're on track. And so you'll see a lot of people with anxiety, as long as they're in control and on track where they need where they want to be, life is great. But the minute you take a Ferrari off track, it starts to break down. <laughs> Things start to happen. And so I think that's why, um, to me, it's a really awesome metaphor for dealing with what you would call anxiety or the high sensitivity that causes some of the anxiety. And so this is some examples of things you know um, to help you understand if you're a Ferrari or not. Uh, For example, Ferraris tend to – they overheat pretty quick, right? So if it's getting – if it's if it's if they're stressed, if they're anxious, if there's a lot of pressure on them, you might see them kind of blow up quickly, or you might see them try to disappear and go take a pit stop and stay away from everybody. They tend to hide away. A lot of Ferraris tend to be perfectionists. They tend to worry about the little things. And part of that, I believe, is if you're picking up four times more information or data than everyone around you, then the idea of going for perfection makes sense. Because you know four times more ways to make something perfect. Um, another idea of uh, Ferraris are simply the idea that if little things become big things. Ferraris, for example, you feel every bump in a Ferrari. You feel every little, you know, every little issue. It's even driving into a driveway. You've got to be careful because if it's too big of a dip, you could bottom out pretty easily. And these are all little signs of people that have a little anxiety. The neat thing about uh, about high sensitivity, if it's what's driving your anxiety, it be just simply because you pick up so much more information, you might want to have more breaks. You might want to take more pit stops. You might want to make sure that you're actually taking some time or even more time to go put fuel and and to fill up your vessel again, right? Because it's not enough to just keep burning the candle. At some point, you have to 
you know, you have to put more back into the candle. You have to put more oil back into the lamp instead of just burning it to the end. So think about yourself. Are you an anxious person? Do you tend to want to disappear and, and hide away from people? Do you blow up really fast? Does uh, the fact that you haven't had a meal yet make you really hangry? Do your, do your medicines work really quickly for you? Are you somebody that when you take a pain med, it works? Are you somebody that when you drink caffeine, it, it stimulates? I mean, there's some people that could drink all the caffeine in the world and it doesn't seem to affect them. High sensitives are responsive to a lot of these things. And then the natural outcropping or outpouring of too much stimuli is, um, guess what? A little anxiety. So pay attention to it. Um, I've actually been working on writing a book on it, Ferraris in a World Full of Chevys, and also uh, another um, program I put together called Anxious and Engaged, where I know people that aren't even offering their greatest mission and they're they're not offering their greatest gift to the world because they're too anxious about it. And so when we're too anxious, we get disengaged. And I feel like we've got to figure that out. When I disengage what I, from what I'm supposed to be bringing to this world, then I'm not going to feel positive and hopeful in my life, which will probably cause my depression, right? So depression comes from anxiousness, and the anxiousness comes from maybe overstimulation. It's a pretty interesting um, approach and, and philosophy, and uh, we'll be talking a lot more of it on the show because I think it's so critical to each of us to get ahead of this. If you've got it in your family, quit running from it. Let's put you in the driver's seat of your own Ferrari and let's teach you how to drive it. More fun straight ahead. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Welcome to the program. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side, along with Jeff and Terry. The gang is gathered to help you this Monday morning. Doing what we can. Is it only Monday? I know. Started. Had a great, uh, I don't know, just a great weekend. I don't, I don't know what else to say except, man, oh man, life is good. How about I'm sorry? Yeah, you're still, you're still <laughs> a little upset, aren't you? About, about me. I went to. We've moved, be, we've moved past the oranges that you didn't bring. I didn't bring you oranges. I I went this weekend to Fresno, and really Clovis is where I was. But mm-hmm. um, I have other relatives there too. It's a great place in Clovis, California, and I had some speeches there. And I sat down at a luncheon with a, um, a man that served as Jeff's mission president in Russia, and I somehow don't think I was ever told. I didn't come up in the conversation at all. No, because I didn't know you were connected to him. I did say somebody I was just talking to told me how much they loved an article that you had uh, – a speech you had given and an article you had written. <laughs> and apparently that was you that told me that and you he was your mission president. And yeah. you're sure you told me that. I'm positive. I don't remember that. But – I wouldn't put it by me. But the other thing that happened maybe that made me forget about it is that I was also loaned 
a really nice car. That's understandable. Porsche Carrera that I then drove up into the Sequoia National Park. Uh, what year was it again? The 20, I think 15, 2016. Oh, okay. My wife really wants one of those older Porsche Carreras. That's like yeah. her dream car. Is it really? Yeah. Has she ever driven one? I had never driven one. But when you drive it, it changes you. <laughs> I don't doubt it. And I, I, I'm not one that would normally care too much about a car like that. It's, but once you drive one, now you get it. It's a, it's a race car. You can go so fast around corners in that car. So what you're saying is it played more to your superficial side. Oh, totally. Mm-hmm. Actually, and I felt really safe in it because it's a smaller mm. car. But you feel safe because you. I feel like I could really put that car anywhere I needed to put that car. I received. It's so responsive. I received a bit of bad news in the in the way of cars. What? So you know how I have a Toyota Camry Solara, yeah. right? So when I was out looking for a car, I test drove a Mini Coupe. Yeah. It was the most fun I've ever had driving a car. And my wife looked at the price, looked at the consumer reports, and yeah. that didn't have great reviews. Uh, they said, you can buy a Mini Coupe. Just don't buy this year, this year, this year, this year, or this year. And it was like most of the years. So she's like, tell you what, in five years, you can buy a Mini Coupe. Well, since then, yeah. when I've expressed interest in the Mini Coupe, she said, you can't get one. I said, why not? They don't look very masculine. Uh, she so has, she, she thinks has, I mean, they she look a, a yeah. She has a point. About she that. thinks they look a little too girly. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. No, it's true. But that's coming from a woman. So what does that mean? I'm not <sighs> sure. Does she come from a, a place of like she feels like it's more a car for her, not a car for him? Yeah, maybe that is the point legitimized because it's coming well, from maybe, a woman. Well, maybe what you ought to do is you you take. Like the minivan, or what's that car you have? It's not a minivan. It's a the Nissan the Pathfinder. S, yeah, yeah. You take the Pathfinder, the SUV. That's, yeah. that's kind of manly. Yeah. Yes. But then, and then you let her take the Cooper. Well, she'd have to. I, I only want one that sticks. So I, I just want to hear from the two of you. Yeah. Is the Mini Coupe girly? No. Okay. Here's the deal. <laughs> I don't think so. Because <laughs> this is now here because I, I was raised. I had a Volkswagen Bug when I grew up. Yeah, and it was awesome. It was the best car ever. And so I have all this nostalgia for Volkswagen Bugs. I would love to go buy a Volkswagen Beetle, an old one. But no, no, a new sporty, really fast well, one. But hurry, then everybody they're, tells they're me they're going to stop making those. Go on. Are they really? Yeah. That everybody tells me that's not a manly car. Hmm. And I'm almost like, hey, it's not about manliness. It's about nostalgia. Will you have flowers in that little place no. holder in the center of the I'd dash? I put a pen. I just put pen? my pen okay. right Yeah, then you're fine. I think the flowers, yeah, I don't know. But it's now just... I know what car I'm buying. I'm buying a new car. Oh. You just. I'm not going to tell you what it is. A Mini Coupe. It's got to go through this coupe. again. Yeah. Your last car took you like a year and a half. Mm-hmm. I had my car and like drove it into the ground before you even got yours. Yeah. I'm talking one of those cool red ones, not the ones that have like the fake eyelashes on the headlights that oh. are made to look like a ladybug or a yeah. yeah. I guess those are the bugs, but I think yeah. if you get a Mini Cooper, you'd have to have old Jack. Is that what they call it? Uh, the 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 British flag on the roof. Oh, there you go. Oh, okay. You'd have to. Okay. Well, that I'm going to tell. Less... I'm going to tell my wife. The verdict is no. 
the Mini Coupe is not a girly car. Or maybe wood paneling or something like that. I really yeah, just want – so like it's a station wagon <laughs> yeah, Mini Coupe. Exactly. I, I really just want it for like the cool toggles oh, yeah. and the cool key. Oh, yeah. It looks like a, a mini millennium millennial Falcon. Okay. And – is it millennial? Millennium. Millennium Falcon. Let it go. And, uh, but you are a millennial. <laughs> and it's cool. It's like a little we'll get to that. It's like a little millennium millennial millennium millennium falcon, falcon yes. and you stick it into like this little uh port. Yes. Yeah. Okay. And, and that's how you start the car. It's, I I'm really it I just want it for the buttons and but, the the key. Yeah, um, And okay. it has a sunroof. Huh. And it drives fast. Hey, just stick to your Solara. And it's a go-kart. Just enjoy the Solara. I get a surprisingly high number of compliments for my it's a Solara. Great looking car. <laughs> Seriously. Um, let's get to the headlines. Speaking of millenniums. What? I don't know. Okay. Uh, let's get to the headlines with Terry. Terry, what else should we be paying attention On to? On Sunday, CIA Director Mike Pompeo and other advisors to President Trump argued that his surprise decision to agree to meet with North Korean leader Kim Jong-un was less impulsive than it appeared to U.S. allies and members of Congress and the State Department and the Department of Defense. I added those last two. Uh, the Wall Street Journal reports this. It suggested it had been made in line with a broader strategy of combating the North Korean nuclear threat. On Friday, the Journal reported that Trump interrupted a trio of South Korean officials and agreed to the meeting. The really? uh, The transcript of the... It's not transcript, but the report of the meeting was that they're given the presentation, and then Trump just halfway through goes, fine, fine, I'll meet with him. And the whole room went, what? <laughs> what are you talking about? They were going to give the presentation and then decide what was the next step, but yeah. he jumps all the way to the meeting, and usually there's like 15 other meetings that happen before the principals yeah. enter the room, and he wants to start with both of them in the room. Wow. It's a different approach. Yeah, just getting it done. Getting it, getting in there fast. On Fox News Sunday, Pompeo said Trump had offered Kim nothing for the summit and argued that while other presidents turned down invitations to meet with Kim and his late father, Kim Jong II, uh, Trump agreed from a position of unprecedented strength. Really? Never before have we had the North Koreans in a position where their economy was at such a risk and where their leadership was under such pressure that they would begin conversations on the terms that Kim Jong-un has conceded to. Well, there you have it. So it, it's a difference of opinion on whether well, there's a position of strength or if you're not getting anything at all from this. Well, and we have to be careful because they haven't even announced any of this in North Korea, right? I don't know. I thought... I thought Maybe they haven't. South Korea has announced it. Mm-hmm. The U.S. has agreed to it, but apparently North Korea hasn't commented publicly yet. Oh, wow. So what if they're all like, psych! Ah! Trickery! The old switcheroo. The old switcheroo trick. Hmm. Retiring Senator Jeff Flake of Arizona conceded on Meet the Press Sunday it would be difficult to mount a primary challenge to President Trump in 2020, but he argued it must be done. Trump is running for re-election already, he uh, told host Chuck Todd. He announced that the and last night, basically, so there was a rally in Pennsylvania Saturday night, yeah. and he announced his new campaign slogan, which is Keep America Great! Exclamation point. Now, you got to say and, it right. Um, what? Keep America Great! Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> exclamation. Exclaim it. Well, I, he, he actually said exclamation point. Yeah. So that's why he keeps being described I that think way. he was doing a predictive text at the moment. Trump, Keep America great! Trump then asked for a lawyer on stage, and a few minutes later a lawyer appeared and he asked, could you trademark that for me? And the lawyer said, right away, sir. Wow. Exclamation point. So he's having his whole election process here. So 
people were like, did he just announce he's running for re-election officially? Did he start his re-election campaign? Of course he is. So that was the the line of questioning. And uh, Jeff Flake said he announced last night, basically, you need to think he needs to be challenged from somebody who espouses your views. That's from Chuck Todd. And Flake said, yes, I do. I mean, it would be tough to go into a Republican primary. The Republican Party is the Trump Party right now, but that's not to say it will stay that way. So what Jeff Flake yeah. is saying. But, you know, Flake feels, you know, free because he's retiring. So he has no he's connection like, to the electorate and yeah. he can do what he wants. Yeah. President Trump's lawyer seeking to negotiate a deal with special counsel Robert Mueller that uses the interview with the president as leverage to spur a conclusion to the Russia investigation, according to people familiar with the discussions. <laughs> so we'll talk to you, but we have to wind this thing down. Yeah. The president's legal team considering telling Mueller that Trump will agree to a sit-down interview based on multiple considerations, including that the special counsel commit to a date for concluding at least the Trump-related portion of the investigation. Okay. One of the ideas is uh, suggest a deadline of 60 days from the date of the interview, the person said. Another consideration for the legal team is reaching an agreement with Mueller on the scope of his questioning of the president, which they expect to focus largely on his decision to fire former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn and former FBI Director James Comey, according to people familiar it, with the matter. It seems like you can't rush something like this. Yeah. Like, justice rolls slowly. Like kind of like moss, yeah. It just slowly grows, mm-hmm. and you just got to let it grow. But you know, how about we give you the interview you want, and then you wrap this thing up in sixty days? Well, well, yeah, but we're not ready to have the interview yet because we need. We've got other people we're still interviewing. True. Okay. So we'll see. Yeah, it's a, it's a tactic. It is. A tactic. See what happens. Mother's Day card saying "Mom" instead of "Mum" went on sale across Britain, sparking fears that a celebration is becoming Americanized. Stationary store purchases, um, it's a brand of store over there, I guess, has broken new ground this year, offering an alternative spelling alongside cards reading Mum and Mother. It's the first British store to introduce Mom cards. The move has left linguists concerned that U.S. TV shows are causing a language shift among British children. A professor at Lancaster University told The Telegraph, My nephews watch American cartoons and use words from them. It could be linked to children's exposure to American television programs with the ES at the end of the programs. The P-R-O-G-R-A-M-M-E-S, the Britishized version of programs. And hearing the word mom is seeing them using it more at home. A number of people have taken to social media to express their fury at the use of the American term. Fury. They're mad. Wow. What do you think? Is that a thing? No. Should be concerned? I mean, there's a lot of things in this world. Not a thing? I have a piece of millennial news. Millennial Falcon news? No, millennial like... You're a millennial. Age gender news. Not gender, but demographic news. So Jeff, as we have uh, talked about, Pew Research has established anyone born between 1981 and 1996, currently between the ages of 22 and 37, are... Millennials. Wrong. That is factual classification from a respected That's polling a fact, company there. Jack. You're wrong. May, uh, so they're saying that millennials may be successful in many ways, but they are failing when it comes to cleaning their teeth, a new study says. Oh, boy. Jeff, listen up. Research committed by uh, Hello Products, an oral care startup. Hello. Hello. Found out that nearly 30% brush their teeth once a day. That's not me. Hold on, hold on, hold on. It's not the once a day thing that's crazy. It's 30%. Yeah. 
are brushing their teeth once a day. Right. Okay. Of the 2,000 Americans surveyed, the average person has gone had gone more than two days at a time without brushing their teeth at least once a day. Out of 2,000 Americans surveyed, 62% of adults are too afraid to visit the dentist. Most of us know that professional <laughs> yes. dental care is important for our overall health. Visiting can be nerve-wracking experience for some, and so they just skip it. Of the group, 62% said they were too afraid to visit the dentist, with millennials more likely to be afraid of the dentist than any other age group. That's what? not me. See, is this, is proof. this is proof I'm not a millennial. I'm not afraid to go to the dentist. I brush my teeth definitely more than once a day. Why are your people so afraid? My people? Your people. You're not allowed to say that, by the way. Why are your millennials so afraid? I'm not a millennial. Top 10 reasons Americans avoid the dentist. I don't identify as a millennial. Okay. Top 10 reasons Americans avoid the dentist. Yeah. Fear of painful treatment. Fear of pain after treatment. Noise of the dental drill. Negative past experience. Yeah. The anesthetic that doesn't actually work. Mm-hmm. Uh, dental instruments, you gag easily, Yeah. afraid of being poked with a sharp object, uh-huh. feeling of helplessness, embarrassed due to oral hygiene. The heaviness of that weighted lead vest no, they put on you. No, that's delightful. I wish I had one of those at home. I can get you one. Really? A lead vest? So the, the thing that I'm not afraid to go to the dentist, the thing that bothers me the most at the dentist is when they want to take x-rays of your teeth and they jam those little plates into your gums, yeah, and they I just really like poke your gums. Yeah, gum poking, not good. Yeah. But the weighted blankets? Mm-hmm. Interesting. They actually, I think, use those for, um, what is it? People with autism? Yes, and anxiety. That's true. It would work on me. A leaded blanket? I don't have autism, but it just feels right. Yeah, it does. But... um yeah. So you've got to go talk to your cohort and see if you can't get more of them go brushing more and more of them getting in to get help. Talk to your people, Jeff. Have your people talk to Terry's people. Everything that you just said was offensive on so many levels. To who? Millennials. No, to people that... Uh, Don't brush their teeth. No. No? no? People right. that resent being called millennials. Those are my people. Why would anyone resent their group? It's who you are. (laughs) I don't resent being an ex-gen. Terry doesn't resent being... A zenial. A zenial. Yeah, I'm in between. (sighs) And you're officially not in between there, Jeff. You are a millennial. You're slapping labels on us. Oh, boy. Wow. Did you hear that label slap? That was great. It was efficient. Yeah. Sometimes you have to like you put the label on, you got to readjust the label, yeah. and you're kind of frustrated that Constantly way. Constantly fixing the that label. That was an efficient label right there. That really was. I spit my mouthwash at you, sir. So he did a dental thing with the story about him not brushing his teeth. Okay, let's do this the way we've been practicing it. Now do it as the Mad Hatter. <laughs> let's hear how you do it that way. Well, uh, if I'm a millennial, then uh, then call me... I don't know what you would call Millennial. It. Millennial. And I spit my what? I spit my mouthwash at you, sir. Sir. <laughs> See, that I think is perfect. From now on, when we need you to, we're just going to have you do the Mad Hatter voice. Again, people may have missed it earlier. Some people think that Jeff and I have the exact same voice and they can't discern between the two. So from now on, Jeff should, will be sounding like the Mad Hatter. We should just make this a game. 
Okay. And we could throw people off. You right. could write down several of the phrases that I'm known for saying on the show. Yeah. And I'll say things that you say on the show, things like, uh, I mean that in the best way possible. Yeah. <laughs> it's something that you say. I do say that a lot. But I mean that. Stick with us. I mean that in the best way possible. You always say, yabba dabba do. <laughs> Have I once said that on the show? Oh, don't, don't act. Coy. Okay. You know. You know who you are. Hey, up next, we're going to be uh, talking to some people that have put together a documentary about um, how, how to eat healthier, right? It's the name of the documentary is called Eating You Alive. It's in theaters Thursday, April 5th. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you live longer. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, cancer, heart disease, stroke, diabetes, obesity, and the list of uh, other common health issues that American adults face. That list goes on and on. The news uh, is not terribly new or even surprising, considering how much of our diet consists of unhealthy foods, greasy foods, oversized fountain drinks. So our next guests have put together a documentary. Paul Canamare and uh, Marilee Jacobs uh, take a whole new look at whole foods and plant-based diets and how we can use those to heal the body. They also try to explore the dysfunctional relationship that many of us Americans have with food and uh, really try to give us a scientific look at the reasons why we may be getting so sick. Paul and Marilee, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having us. Oh, uh, Marilee, we're having a hard time hearing you, so we're going we're gonna to go try to get you uh, a new line, Marilee, and I'll talk to Paul for a minute. Now, Paul, the name of the um, event that you're going to be having and the release of the documentary, the name of the documentary is called Eating You Alive, One Bite at a Time. And uh, talk to us about, um, you're going to be releasing it in April, this uh, this coming up April. Talk about the, the, the release and why you chose to release the movie the way you are. Well, because at this, the, the film is about the reversing disease. That's the message of the film is because we have chronic disease is just running rampant in this country. It's not getting any better. And obviously with it being the first of the year for most of us, yeah, uh, it's a little bit later, but it's not, quite, it's not January, but we're still early. And this is a time when people are reflecting and thinking about their health and thinking about making changes. And so this is a, we felt that this was a great time to it to release the message. I love it too because um you know everybody kind of gets the big push in January but it seems like we all start getting outdoors in spring and so it might yeah. be a perfect time to get to get focused on it and talk so. and talk about the 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 film what uh, how how did you go about doing the research and and how are you going about breaking down some of these myths that we have some of these uh you know inaccurate thoughts we have about our food. Well we, we were introduced to the lifestyle. I call it a lifestyle, a diet or whatever. But this way of eating, we were, we were introduced to it by a physician uh, in our home area of Chattanooga, Tennessee. And uh, I had had a father that had, had heart disease. And, uh, and then fa- my family members had diabetes and cancer kind of ran rampant. And my family, and I was kind of getting to that age where I felt like I needed to uh, 
Yeah, I need to look into this because I figured I was genetically destined for the same, you know, sort of outcomes that my family had had. So that was what sort of sent us down the road of, of trying this because I was not at all a plant-based eater or a vegan or anything like that. Uh, I meet with every meal, but as I tried this in, uh, in just a short period, actually six weeks, I lost 45 pounds and went back to my high school weight. But the biggest thing wow. I noticed was that my I felt so much better. I'd had issues with rotator cuff and tendonitis in both elbows, and I realized that all that went away. And when that happened, of course, at the time, I didn't really give credence to the diet for doing that. But over time, I saw this happen, and my family began to do to take on some of these changes in their way of eating. And my mother, who had over 50% blockage in her carotid artery, that was what preempted her to, to, to try this. And within three months of living this way, uh, it was totally turned around and reversed, and she fell well within the normal range, which was below 20% blockage. So she reversed that. That is what really made us go down this road. Of this is a message that we have got. We've, we've got to tell. Yeah. And, uh, you got to get it out. Physicians that we, we interviewed about, uh, I think 60 physicians across the country. And, uh, and it's just amazing to hear the science behind, uh, behind the power of, of plants. Yeah. In fact, uh, Paul has a, is, an, is an award-winning director and producer with more than 35 years in the business and the personal story. Um, and along with uh, Paul's uh, work, Marilee Jacobs is a co-producer of the documentary. And we do have Marilee back now with us. Marilee, are you there? I sure am. Oh, there you go. We can hear you so much better. Now, you've been you you have a similar uh, uh, kind of success story. It seems like you were raising three children and then you made these life altering decisions to transition to whole foods and a plant based lifestyle in 2014 as well. How how did it impact your life? You, you know, our whole team did it together. I think that was kind of a, a unique thing. Our whole production team decided to take this challenge on. And we all experienced similar results. And uh, challenges are a little bit different um, when you're when you're doing it within a family that may not be quite on board. Yeah. Uh, but I too, you know, in a period of about six weeks or so, went back to my high school weight. I didn't have as much weight to lose, but I lost 15 pounds. Um, I'm I'm proud to say my 19 year old daughter and I now we're the same size. And that's <laughs> kind of exciting. That's great. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm not sure she's as crazy about me borrowing her clothes, but you know, mom, stay <laughs> out of my closet. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. But allergies cleared up, skin conditions clear up, um, gastrointestinal issues, digestive issues clear up. It's just amazing across the board, and we hear it over and over and over again. You know, it's you can't have something that has that consistent of results and, and not be some foundation to it. Yeah. What, uh, in, in making the movie Eating Alive, um, Marilee, what, what stands out for you as, as some of the, the bigger learnings that you learned as you were interviewing all of these doctors that Paul was talking about? <laughs> well, you know, it was a wonderful experience because it was like we got a one-on-one tutorial from, from all of the great pioneers in the plant-based movement and those who have done the research studies and, and studied the studies, you know, claiming that butter is back or that fat's not everything that bad that we thought it was, that type of thing. So it was a really great experience. And I think what stands out, um, the, the simple message is eat plants. You know, that, that's the biggest thing. And all those things that we think are healthy uh, are really not. So it takes a whole change of the mindset 
uh, with regards to food, um, things like olive oil. You know, I think that was a big eye-opener for people and for us. You know, olive oil and coconut oil were not healthy at all. And um, I think that still lands as one of the largest um, aha moments for most people. Yeah. And it's hard for them to believe at first, but it's, but it's all true. And those people who take that step and eliminate the added oils from their diet as well, um, they're astounded at the dramatic results that they see once they drop that, you know, even after going to a plant-based diet. Mm. What, uh, Paul, do you see, um, Paul Kanemer, what do you see <clears throat> as uh, w- like one of your big learnings that's like was directly connected to a prominent disease? Uh, well, uh, you know, for me, I think uh, I don't know how to answer your question specifically, but I know that I was so surprised at the way diseases are detected and the fact that they exist in our bodies so long before we actually recognize them as a disease. Mm. So therefore, when you find that you have heart disease or you, found, you find you know, that, you, that you have uh, diabetes, this disease is not something that just you, you went in one day, one day to the physician and you contracted it that day. You know, it's not that type of a situation. And for me, finding out that cardiovascular disease is something that five-year-olds have at this point in our country because of the way that they're eating. Now, it's not identified as such because, again, for most people, the identification of heart disease is sudden death you know, and a heart attack. Yeah, right. But so for me, that was very interesting. That was very interesting to me to find that I was well, I was well on this road, even though nothing had been detected within me, as, is, as it is not in most, we're probably most all dealing with a form of heart disease if we're eating the standard American diet. Yeah. No, of that's... course, the flip side of that, knowing that we can reverse, not only stop that, but we can reverse that. That's true. That, again, was the, the big thing for me. A big learning. Um, Marilee Jacobs, uh, who is a co-producer on the documentary, Marilee, what, um, if, if, like, how did your diet change? How did your life change? Is this just eliminating meat? Is this, or is, and just going to pure plant-based? Um, and, and how, and how did you make that transition? You know, it sounds so extreme, but in all reality, whenever you have a goal in mind, you know, whether it's to be really great at sports or whether it's to, you know, move up the career track in your job, it all just requires a bit of commitment, deciding to do it. Once you decide to do it, it's really not as challenging as as people may think or overwhelming. Um, For me, I actually had bouts of vegetarianism growing up, so I wasn't totally unfamiliar with the idea of eating plants. But but this becomes a, a much more um, focused attempt at reversing disease. And from that perspective, uh, not only are you eating more plants, you're eating all plants and as close to their whole form as possible. So for me, it was the elimination. I was a huge dairy addict, loved my cheese. And um, it was that was probably the hardest thing for me to, mm. to give up. And yet, we were eating such volumes of food that I really didn't have the cravings that I thought that I would. So for me, it's, it's eliminating meat, basically any animal-based products, period. And then eliminating as well refined flours, refined sugars, and uh, refined added oils. 
and, and eating those kinds of fats in their whole form, eating the olives, the avocados, the walnuts, those kinds of things. And um, when our whole team was doing it, you know, it was, it was a little easier. It's always easier when you have someone to do it with you because you have some moral support. And you also have other people that may be preparing dishes and you kind of share recipes and taste test and that type of thing. So more than anything, it was an adventure. And, and that's what kind of made it fun. Oh, that's great. And to to be able to have your team to be a part of it and to go through it together, what, it seems like it's such a better way to do it. Um, Paul, what would you say, uh, as we as we kind of wrap this up, what, what would you uh, want everybody to take away from this? What is the ultimate message that we can learn when we watch Eating You Alive? I think... Uh... Well, the number one thing is that you can reverse disease, but, but embodied in that is the fact that we as individuals have so much more control of our health than we thought, than we, than we typically think we do. For me, I know growing up, you go to the doctor, he prescribes your medication, you take that medication, you take that pill, and that takes care of all the ills, so to speak. And that's, that's the way I was raised. I think that's the way most of us in this country feel and, and, and believe. And I think we all need to, uh, to understand that it's what we do every day that impacts our lives and our health. And we are very much in control of that. And I think people need to understand that the food that we put in our mouth is probably the greatest factor in how our health plays out throughout our life. Mm. And, and that's the, that for me is, is, I think, the message that we would want everyone to, to realize. Yeah, no, that's powerful. They have that control. It's it's very freeing. It really is, and it's we we talk about that on the show a lot with some of our other guests. That this is your life. This is your um, this is you. You have more say over your life. Uh, let me just ask Marilee one more question. Marilee, what what would be the one thing that uh, you would hope we'd we'd take out along with what Paul's already addressed? Uh, true. I think just reiterating what he said about having the power in your hands. And that if you have come to this um, understanding or belief that you're too far gone, <laughs> you know, you're never going to be able to get the weight off, you're, you're sick, you're on these medications, and you're never going to live a life any different than that from here on out until the day you die, this is hope, and this is healing, and it's at the end of your fork. Mm. That is so good. Uh, well, we appreciate both of you, Paul Candemir and uh, Marilee Jacobs. The name of the documentary is Eating You Alive. It's in theaters uh, near you. That's going to be launched on Thursday, April 5th. And um, all you got to do is go Google Eating You Alive, and they will get you to locations in your area where you can watch that uh, that screening um, along with a bunch of other people around the country. It's, again, in theaters, April 5th, Eating You Alive. Um, powerful, powerful stuff. Trying to help you live longer. That's one of the goals of the Matt Townsend Show. Be healthier. And what's uh, one way to do it? Moderation. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Yes, it's that time, folks, to uh, go visit our good brethren down at BYU Sports Nation and find out what's coming up on their show at the top of the hour. Spencer and Jerem, hello, gentlemen. Hello, Matthew. Matt. <laughs> Matt, 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 Matt. 
<laughs> you sounded like a, a sheep. Bah, That's bah. it. Hey. What's um, going on, man? Hey, you know, just hanging out. Just yeah. hanging out. You know how it is. Here's the question. Uh, have any of you ever been to um, – have you ever, ever, any of you ever been to the Sequoia National Park? No. Wait, 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 wait. Is that uh, in Northern California? It's in Northern Cal, kind of Fresno-ish area. No. And uh, it's where the largest tree, the General Sherman tree is, which is the largest tree, I guess, on Earth. Oh, wow. That's cool. So wow. I went there, by the way, this last weekend. Oh, and, that's great. And a, and a friend let me borrow his uh, Porsche Carrera. And so really? I, uh-huh. and now that's what a good I, friend. It's a really good friend. And now what I'm wondering is if Spencer can somehow get me a good deal on a Porsche Carrera. Spencer can hook you up, dude. I mean, I know. He's got a lot Spencer, of – this guy's Spencer helped me get a, a, a nice vehicle. better car than I had. Yeah. For uh, a reasonable price. Yours was a Ferrari. What was it? A Ferrari – Something like that. Yeah. I, I can't, it was a Frankie Ferrari from San Francisco. <laughs> so I – but I'm in, love, I'm in love with driving fast now. Well, you don't need a don't tell Porsche the cop. necessarily – to drive fast. There are a lot of fast cars. But if you want to drive fast in a Porsche, then yes, I okay. I can uh, hook you up with a deal, man. Yeah, help me out there, man. You I want you to help. say it like John Gruden, though, Spencer. Tell you what, Tarico, <laughs> I like that Porsche, man. I think it can really move. Are you, uh, are you more old school or are you new school? Are you going to use these metrics uh, for how you evaluate your cars, John? <laughs> <laughs> the other day he said he's not into metrics. Yeah, he's not into metrics. Well, he, but I want to I hear John say it. Yeah, what would you say, John? Yeah, I don't know, man. I'm not into those metrics, man. I, I, I trust my eyes, you know? <laughs> that is great. That may be that may be your best impersonation. <laughs> and that'd be saying a lot. I mean, that really would. This guy. He, nobody this imp- guy. Yeah, this guy. I mean, he impersonates so many people. I don't know who that is. Hey, I mean, a Porsche can't do a spider white two banana, you know? <laughs> I can't. I can't you're tell. Right. Yeah. Matt, yeah. was yours from Goodfellas? Like what? Yeah, I don't yeah. know what mine was. You talking to me? You talking to me? Mm-hmm. Hey, um, so guys, I don't know if you heard, but uh, BYU is in the knit. Mm-hmm. BYU is in the knit, and they've got a game this Wednesday. Uh huh. Against. Right. By the way, here's when I saw who, I got a little scared. Okay, you why, why are you scared? scared? Why are buy you scared, Matt? Get an alarm system. Buy a dog. <laughs> buy a dog. It's Stanford. And, you know, whenever yeah. I see Stanford, I always assume they're going to dominate. Well, they're in the NIT, too, so they're That's not that good. That's a good point. Okay. <laughs> That's a really good point. Listen, listen. There was an LDS kid named Tanner McKee. He signed to play football for Stanford after his mission. Yes. Whoever wins this game gets Tanner McKee. Really? It's the, it's the Tanner McKee. Sweepstakes. <laughs> wow. The only now, issue is Stanford doesn't know it yet. Okay. We have yet to consult with them or Tanner. St- Stanford is a third seed. Cougars a sixth six. seed. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh-huh. Does the seeding matter? No. You're in the NIT. You didn't make the NCAA tournament. That's a good point. It's a really good point. To some degree, your season was a disappointment, unless you won like nine games last year, and Stanford Wh- did not. Where is this game being played? On the farm. Okay. In Palo Alto. Oh, I was like, some farm. Okay. That's what they call. Holy cow! Farm. In Palo Alto, though, that doesn't seem. The last time BYU fair. went there, they scored 112 points. I, it's going to be okay. Must or have not, a real whatever. springy floor. This is bonus ball. <laughs> this is this is like going to regionals. 
Yes, in, in, in mm-hmm. stake in stake ward ball, yeah. yeah, or city league or something. Uh-huh. Yeah. This is okay. So, so you guys, I, I'm sure on the show you'll be talking in depth about all of this. We will. Uh, Dave Rose, hundred percent. Dave Rose will join us. Also, he did something significant over the weekend, and, and frankly, BYU fans did this. What? Dave Rose was in a contest with three other coaches. He had made it into the final four in the Infinity Coaches Challenge. The winner, based on votes, just straight up votes. Gets $100,000 towards the cancer charity of choice. Oh, wow. Now, BYU happens to have a center for cancer research. It's called the Simmons Center. BYU won this. Dave oh, Rose won this. So BYU got 100 did? Gs to be able to uh, use for cancer research, which is awesome. That is huge. In fact, your boy, Spencer Linton, was at the Rex Lee run. Rex yes. Lee, of course. The, yes, yeah. I was. The uh, former president of BYU who passed away due to cancer. Uh, 5Ks, 10Ks, and whatnot. And Spencer was there, and it was really cool. Did Spencer uh, run? You to win it and spe- Did you run? You had to, you had to MC that. I MC'd it, so I was not allowed to run, but oh. I did get to run a little bit on the track okay. during the events. So so, they, so you just kind of, what, ran a 40-meter? <laughs> yeah, something like that. Okay. That's a, that's a great – and he won. I saw that post – that that we you know he could win, but I did not know he won. He won, so that's very cool. Thousand so nice, dollars, nice job by the Cougar fans. That's really cool to get, put that out there. Fans get. brought it together, made it happen as always. This one, it was an important deal. Like it, it's meant a lot to a lot of people. It's crazy that we haven't kicked cancer up yet. We haven't beat him up enough. We will eventually. We'll get it. We'll get it. We're working on it. Uh, anything else going to be on the show? Not the, not that we need more, but yeah. What, why men's volleyball is the hottest team on campus right now? What they did over the weekend that was significant. Baseball takes three in a row. Gymnastics still in the top twenty. They post their second highest score of the season. Why did BYU's best runner sprain his ankle in a five k? By the way, and it wasn't at the Rex Lee run. Really? And did Jimmer extend his season in China in the playoffs? Huh? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Tell me one of those eighteen. Things. There's a lot going on. Plus, yeah. oh, oh, by the way, spring football practices today again. Oh, boy. How's it going? Are we narrowing down the quarterbacks yet? BYU's probably going to win the national championship. Yep, down to seven now. (laughs) So from eight to seven. Yeah, well, because the eighth is still on a mission, I think. Okay, yeah. (laughs) Good, yeah. Well, and and the ninth is going to go on a mission. (laughs) Yes. Maybe what you Depending on if BYU wins Wednesday. Maybe maybe the nothing is bigger than really a nine-quarterback threat. I, I would dare say that's never happened in college football history. I wonder why. BYU made history for the wrong reasons last year. Yeah. Now they're going to make it for the right reasons. It's, it's going to come together this year. I can already feel it. Go to a bowl game. Let's go. Let's go to a bowl game. Put on those weird-looking shoes. Let's go bowling. Yeah, and the NIT, too. I mean, I mean, let's just get that done. And Stanford, they can – I mean, come on. We can take Stanford. How hard could that be? Ah, Well, thanks, guys. Have a great uh, show. Knock them dead. They always – they got a lot to cover. And the NIT, you are still, you know, the 64th and below team, but it's still competition, and it it actually makes it fun. I can't help but think of the Mickey Mouse theme whenever you say NIT, K-E-Y. Yeah. Did you watch that? Were you a Mouseketeer? Um, I know know enough to know the song. I I was a Mouseketeer. Really? Mm -hmm. Like on the show? No. Okay. I watched every episode. What were they called if they were actually on the show? Were they Mouseketeers? Oh, I don't know. 
So you were like an honorary Mouseketeer. I felt like I, I felt like I, I felt like I was one. Hmm. Yeah, those were the days. Ryan Gosling, house. Uh, Britney Spears, Justin Timberlake—they were, they were all Mouseketeers. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Annette Funicello, but she was even before my day. Who know? is Funicello? Annette Funicello. Yeah, still don't know who she is. Holy cow. You know everyone else's name, but you don't know Annette Funicello. Who is she? Look her up. She'll change your life. She was the original. <laughs> she was the original Mouseketeer. Okay. Boy. <sighs> These young millennials, I tell you. <laughs> Sorry. Jeff brought his family in today. Um, hey, uh, as we like to do, we always like to wrap up the show with a hero story. Listen to this one. Last Saturday, Lara Wolf stopped off at a Waffle House in her neck of the woods in Texas for a meal. And what she witnessed there and what she did afterward ended up changing the life of a teen Waffle House employee. Wolf happened upon the restaurant on the morning uh, when 18-year-old Ebony Williams, a recent high school graduate, was working one of her shifts trying to uh, scrape together funds to pay for college. As Wolf explains in a Facebook post accompanied by a photo of the incident, she overheard an an elderly customer sitting at the counter um, and tethered to an oxygen tank tell Williams that his hands don't work too good. It was then, without hesitation, that Williams took the plate from the struggling customer, a 78-year-old Adrian uh, Carpenter, and uh, started to cut his meat for him. That's when Wolf snapped the photo, which has since gone viral on social media. This may seem small, but to him it sure made a huge uh, impact for him, Wolf wrote in the of, uh, of the man, who Williams said is a regular, but hadn't been in until that day after a recent hospital stay. Since Wolf posted her photo, it's been now shared 46,000 times, received more than 55,000 votes on Reddit and per um, the Houston Chronicle. And guess what now? Over time, it has actually raised $16,000 uh, in scholarship funds for her. The Texas Southern University got wind of it. And uh, they gave Williams a scholarship for sixteen grand that she can put towards a business management degree. The mayor, by the way, has also honored Williams as well. All because of a good deed, folks. That's what a hero is. Just somebody that does what should be done. And they, you know, sometimes people catch you in that act and uh, it can change your life. That's not why we do it, though. We do it just because we're good people. That's the goal of all of us, to lift the world one act of service at a time. That's it for the show. We'll be back again tomorrow. But stick with BYU Broadcasting because BYU Sports Nation is up next.